What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Homer Lewag, one of the most detail-oriented people I have ever met. Homer's incredibly interesting, and he has passions that range from illustration and design to photography and cinematography, but of course you know him as a world-class sleight-of-hand artist and magician. Homer was very excited to do the podcast, so much so that he prepared in advance. We recorded in Larry Fong's hotel room at Magic Live, and Homer brought with him a lot of sheets and a lot of sound bettering equipment and devices and things that a professional would use. I usually just sit down, plop down the microphone, and start recording. But he spent the better part of an hour outfitting Larry's room so that it would sound better. The funny part, though, is that the microphone was on not quite the right setting. (laughs) And so, despite all of Homer's efforts, the sound on the recording is a little strange. He's the first person who has offered to edit his own episode, which he did, painstakingly. (laughs) And I appreciated it very much. So I'm excited for you to listen to it. In the episode, we talk about developing an eye and enhancing your aesthetic skills. We talk about burnout and collaboration, and we talk about cinematography and and life and philosophy. And it's really a wonderful episode, and I'm sure you guys are going to absolutely love it. I certainly had a wonderful time recording it. I even had some epiphanies about myself because of uh, some of the things that Homer related to us. So I'm sure you guys will get something out of it, just like I did. If you haven't already, follow us on all of the social media channels and give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash magicalthinkingpodcast, facebook.com slash mystery, instagram.com slash treasuryofwonder and mystery, and all the other ones as well. Friday, September 9th, which is tomorrow, we'll be releasing a new trick from Chad Long, Transposition Aces. This one is really something special, so when you go to purchase, make sure to use coupon code CHEESYMTP, that's C-H-E-E-S-Y-M-T-P, all caps, and you'll get 20% off of the Chad Long material. Thanks so much for listening. You can always get in touch with me by sending me a message on Facebook or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Get into the episode. You're going to love it. Let me know what you think. Enjoy. Did that help at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it does help. You don't know until you... You know, half the problem is this cover's coming up. <laughs> this is all staged just for you know comedy element. Yeah. <laughs> That's gonna probably drop in the middle, the most intense part of this. You can hear your intro already. After 45 minutes, so over, do absolutely nothing to help this. How's my level? Sensuous. Um, the closer I get, the more you can gain up, and I, you know, it's okay. It's comfortable. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Put my socks up, without interfering with the stories. How much, how long have you been recording already? I, I, I cut out the first eight <laughs> minutes that I already had. Just jump cut on like little moments of <laughs> strangeness. All right, is it okay now? Yes. Read us, read us your favorite tweets. The you. <laughs> I don't go on Twitter much, so how's my levels now? They're fine. Yeah, I would rather it be low 
and take it up, then it'd be high and distort. Yeah, distort. Yeah. yeah. I'll make sure it doesn't start. I'm going to do the interview. I'm not going to The entire line. interview, I'm going to watch the waveform. I'm not going to let you watch. I know what a good peak is. Right. Should I tell him we're, we're rolling? Yeah. Tell him to get the fuck out. Okay, we're, <laughs> we're rolling now. Okay, we're leaving now. Ah, we're leaving, so. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Larry. Thanks. The lights are making hotter. That's <laughs> Turn the ball off. I don't care. Oh. It's not like we have to look at anything except each other. I have to see what the mic looks like, so I know, you know, you have it on bi-directional. Yes. Omnidirectional, and you have uh, tight patterns. And... <laughs> this is the first time I have interviewed someone who knows more about this mic than I do. And I don't know very much about it. <laughs> I read the instructions because there's all those little diagrams mm -hmm. that look like figure eights. So I had to figure what those are. Because so I have a nice mic backstage that I record with. And I wanted to make sure I was using it right. So. Sure. Okay. Okay. Where do we begin? Wherever you want to start. What have you been doing recently? Recently, we've been, um, well, I, I'll, I'm going to be saying a lot of we because I work with David Copperfield, obviously. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking at the mic like it's a person. <laughs> I have to make eye contact with the mic so, I, you know, we establish a rapport. Um, yeah, with David Copperfield, just really focusing on, uh, you know, we have a, an illusion in the show that we've been working on for over four years now. And it's kind of a, uh, never been done before kind of piece with at least four four or five illusions in it in in the piece so it's constantly being tweaked and there's a lot of storytelling there's a lot of leap of faith kind of presentation so you know almost at least 80 percent of the week is geared to improving this routine and everything from script changes to Aesthetics to music, timing, lighting. And just two days ago, we were we relit an entire section, and, and it, to do it, it involved thirty people, involved the whole crew, just to like push an object six feet. But we had, to do lighting changes and choreography changes, you need everybody. Sure. Otherwise, it'll be come showtime, we'll be running into each other. So. But that's uh, what was the question. <laughs> Did I answer anything? Yes, you did. It was perfect. Okay. So, okay, so what is your role at? And I understand that there's probably a ton of stuff that you can't talk about. Yes. There'll so, be a lot of ums and, you know what I'm saying, kind of. Sure, of course, yeah. And and that's totally fine. And let me know if I'm talking too much on one subject because, you know, uh, like you just asked me, you know, my role with David Copperfield is co director. Okay. And that's kind of a blanket title. Um, I do a little. I do a little bit of everything. Sure. And we're a very small group. Uh, creatively, it's Chris Kenner, me, and David. Being a tight creative group like that means having many disciplines. If David wants something done. It means we may have to learn a new program or do something we've never done before. Help each other. But and that's what makes it fun. So, uh, were we asking the. What is my, uh, my so, role? Well, yeah, so being co-director means that you've got to put on a whole bunch of different hats. Yeah. Well, if I were to add, had to say in a nutshell, um, I've all, and I've always said this even before I was co-director, is I'm responsible for anything that you see and hear in the show. So if that involves 
design, which is designing what a prop looks like, or if it's the music, which involves editing and EQ and and all the stuff that needs technical stuff to make it uh, a theatrical production. Uh, sometimes it's staging, uh, how people walk on stage, timing, when did, when do they come on stage? When do they grab? How do they grab? What hands do they use to grab a cloth? Because if it's done wrong, it's distracting. And the focus is always on the magic. And it's always on David. And if someone's grabbing a prop behind David and it's awkward and they're bending over funny to pick up a box and walk off stage with it, then the focus, you lost the focus. And then people think, oh, they we were distracted by other things and that's how the magic works. And we want the people to never ever think they were distracted during illusion. They sh should also look like they're looking at what they want to look at. Um, also in the show, we're talking about staging, choreography, uh, any of the visuals in the show. So any of the movies or video that you see in the show that's not live, I've shot or lit or edited or, or all of the above. Um, some of the graphics and the painting, some of the props on stage I've physically painted and distressed to make it look old or look like it's used, whatever the trick calls for. Um, what else? What did I cover? Everything. <laughs> checklist. Well, so, okay, so since we're already talking about the show, I, I know that a lot of the people that listen to this are interested in, in doing better magic and in, in making their own magic better. So in, I include myself in that. How, how do you know when something's good? How do you know when it feels right? Or when, when it does feel right, what does that mean? Uh, usually the audience will tell you because, and, and, and even more sensitive to that is David. David can really feel when something is not right. And sometimes he's not sure what it is. Mm -hmm. And he'll call Chris or call me and say, look, when I appear in the middle of the audience, uh, this is a, a true story, in the new illusion we're doing, when he appears, like most magicians do, in the middle of the audience after a vanish, mm -hmm. it wasn't getting the reaction that he's used to. He's done the, uh, the fan illusion and the beach illusion where he vanishes, appears in the audience, and it's a tremendous response. People really react to that. And he wasn't getting the reaction he was used to. And he calls me up and it's like, I, I need to get a better reaction. How do I do that? At first, I'm like, if the reaction's fine, they're, they're in awe. That's why they're not applauding. Or it, it's, it's, it's great. They're, they're stunned. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it was good enough. And, and David kept pushing me. He's like, it has to be better. It has to be better. And I would keep thinking, and it's good enough. I mean, what's wrong with it? It looks fine. And I'm learning now to never say it looks fine, to go, okay, David's extremely experienced with working with a live audience. Done mm -hmm. it for... I, no, it's 40 years, 35 years. He knows when something's off. So the first thing I do now, and I'm learning this daily to get better at it, is when he says something's wrong, the first thing I don't say anymore is, it's fine. Mm -hmm. The first thing I think in my head is, he has to be right because he feels it, and he has experience to feel it. And then I think, okay, what could it be? And after you dig deep enough, you find the solution. Um, mm -hmm. It's a lighting thing, it's a sound thing, it's a placement thing, it's a timing thing. And by changing my attitude on my response to David sensing something wrong, I was able to think of seven different things 
that we changed in a day. Just little tweaks. Little tweaks. And like my mind, I had literally closed off my mind to these seven things because I said, it's fine. It's all in your head or whatever I was thinking. Those seven things made a huge difference. And we fixed it in a day. And we haven't even looked back since because it now feels right. So, okay, that, that lights me on fire. I love that. It's the, like the importance of the details and the, maybe the minutia that a lot of people would go, it's fine, it's not, you know. What, changing that can't make that big a difference. But then, like, it's, it's really incredible to me and powerful to me that an audience who just reacts emotionally, it, it resonates in them when it is right. Correct. When it's and, like really right. And he can really sense that. And, and the, big, the biggest thing is to accept that there is something off and that there is a solution. If, well, as soon as you think something's fine, then you become 99% of creative people where, oh, it's fine, let's move on. Something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And by opening my mind to the fact that, hmm, let's solve this. A huge difference, and it actually wasn't difficult to do. It was it was just a matter of just accepting that something was wrong and and solving. How long have you been working with David? Uh, I can't. I'm very bad at math, so <laughs> I started in 1993. Okay. Uh, I officially started working for him on tour in 1994, but I helped him with some projects through Chris Kenner, who was already working with David in 1993. So 23 years. Is that the math? Yes, because that's how old I am. Oh! <laughs> so this is funny because for the last few years when someone asks me, well, how long have you been working for David? I always say, first of all, I try to make up a number because I can't remember. <laughs> so let's say it's 18. Okay. I always tell them, you know, if I, had a, if I had a kid when I started here, he'd be 18 years old. That kind of puts it in perspective. I have an 18-year-old kid, which is a big deal. Yeah. Right? About a year ago, one of our new kids that was uh, our new uh, stagehand that was working, and he was helping with a project. And he said, well, how long have you been working here? And I said, well, you know, if I had a kid when I started, he'd be 20, uh, he'd be 22 years old. And he goes, that's how old I am. I, I could be your kid. And it just kind of freaked me out. I'm like, oh my God, it's like a grown human. Yeah. 22 year old kid. So that's how I- Your, your career is an adult person now. Yes. Yes. My career is an adult person, manifests in a person that can legally drink and drive and vote. Well, not legally drink and drive, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> but they can't run a car yet. Is that right? They have to be a 25 or something. You can buy a car, though. You can buy a car, but you can't run a car. And isn't that crazy? Wow. I'm Canadian, so I don't know. Are you really? Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Okay. I, I was thinking about this podcast ahead of time, thinking it might be the best way to just go in chronological order. Well, Otherwise, let's not really do that. jump everywhere. But yeah, let's, I want you to jump everywhere. Okay. So start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we're going to take linear paths, and we're going to jump back and forth between trains. Mm-hmm. Uh, start from the beginning, is that what you said? Yeah, sure. Um, and not magic beginning. I mean, what, what was your childhood like? Because I know I've, I love your dad's art. Uh, only so child. Much. Only child. My dad was a fine artist, graduated from the University of the Philippines in fine art. And he is, and it still is, an amazing painter, sculptor, and can pretty much build, he's a tinkerer, he can build anything out of anything. He loves taking junk out of a junkyard and 
making them into a, a latch for a door or, or, or a barbecue grill out of, you know, scrap metal. Mm -hmm. And, but he is a, a fine artist. And when I was a kid, he used to go around county fairs near, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he would travel to different county fairs within, you know, a few hundred mile radius. And as a six-year-old, I would follow him and I would hang around county fairs for my summers. And he did portraits, charcoal, pastel, for whatever it was, $15, $25. And I remember crowds used to gather around because his he was so good at portraits, he could capture the likeness of somebody. If they were if they were smiling but were in a bad mood that day, you would see that in his portraits. And, and people would gather around, and, and that's how I spent a lot of my childhood. Was, he really saw a person. He could, yeah, because when he was, would teach me how to draw, he said you can't. Like if you were to trace, if you were to put tracing paper over a photo and trace a person, it won't look like them. You have to interpret where a line goes outside of what's underneath or inside. Because if, if I trace, if I have a picture of your face and I trace on the edge of your face, mm -hmm. your face might look bigger. Because mm -hmm. in two D um, space, the lines mean more. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So when you trace, when you draw no somebody, depth, it's exactly. not the same. Okay. When you draw someone, you have to interpret whether that line goes on the inside edge or the outside edge of your tracing. So he was able to do that live with a person sitting in front of him, which is just amazing to me. But um, that was my dad. My mom was a nurse, and she was pretty much made the money in the family. <laughs> my dad was not making $15 portraits at county fairs, which I probably stole and went down and played video games or something. <laughs> Um, and then, like usual, like most magicians, you, someone does a trick for you. He fooled me, and I immediately went to a store called Service Merchandise, and I bought a book that came with a deck of cards. It was called Garcia and Schindler's Magic with Cards. Okay. And that was my first magic book. That's a pretty good first magic book. It's not bad, yeah. And... I would go to the toy store. There was a toy store back then called KB Toy and Hobby, and I'd buy the the, the little turnstile Adams effects, Jiffy Coin Trick, and Diamond Penny. I would buy those, um, and then I met one of my first magicians. Um, his name was Jeff Connor, and he was at the time doing stand-up comedy. He was. The announcer for the contender, the show, the Mark Burnett show in uh, on TV, probably on CBS. So that's how some people might know him. And he was like my first mentor. Okay. And where I met him was at the time my dad, my parents had a little kiosk restaurant at a train station, at a vintage train station in Cincinnati. And he, and I would come help on the weekends. How old are you? I was 11, 10 or, 10 or 11. Okay. And I would help sell shish kebabs and cook and run the register with my mom and dad. Right down the alley was, it's inside a train station, was FAO Schwartz. Oh, cool. And he was working behind the counter. He was a manager. And I was probably coming in there looking at some of them. There were some 10-year magic tricks there. And, so, and next thing you know, he, he's teaching me magic. He would bring his magic books over, and at the time I was just starting to learn like really hard stuff, like card card manipulations, book, uh, Royal Wood card magic kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Sure. Hard side of hand. He was like. Shigard and Browie stuff. Exactly. Okay. And he 
started handing me books like uh, Counts, Cuts, Moves, and Subtlety. Learn at the oh, yeah. cut. Learn moves that are more subtle and less flat, like sure. top change, less top changes and more double undercuts, double this Ascanio spreads. Mm -hmm. Counts and things like yeah. that. Yeah, so he was sort of my mentor. And he was at the time, I was probably 11 or 12, and he was in his 20s. And that, that sort of shaped, gave me another perspective, because I still wanted to learn the hard moves. Because he, he got a brand new book in, and he was like, hey, look at this, it's called Coin Magic by Richard Kaufman. And I'm like, <laughs> yes! You know, I saw all the illustrations, uh -huh. and there's all this hardcore stuff, and I'm like, I want to learn that. Because for some reason, I like the hard stuff. Yeah. And he's like, ah, oh, you know. <laughs> He wants to teach me like mentalism or something that's using more brains and less finger for me. So that he was kind of a nice guy, and I remember he was trying to shape me to try to be original. That's great. Yeah, he once he he said one quote that I remember. I was trying to be like someone. Mm -hmm. I want to be like this person. He said, "Okay, if you um, I, I, let me word this correctly here." Um, Let's say you want it to be just like Landsberg. First of all, if you're an audience and you hated Lance Burton, do they want to see another Lance Burton? Yeah. And if they loved Lance Burton, would they want to see a cheat notation? Absolutely. I'm like, okay. So hopefully one day I'll heed that. And this, <laughs> and this was this was the guy that was doing stand-up comedy. Yeah, he was doing a little bit of stand-up comedy. I think he was. I don't know his exact history, but he was from Minot, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he made his way into Cincinnati, but uh, he was there for a couple of years. He was teaching magic. And we recently, through Facebook, whatever, we connected. Okay. And I see him every now and then. Um, you see not at conventions, but uh, he's really good at cards, and he just has great knowledge of that classic, like, 70s, you know, 70s magicians, Francis Carlisle's, and the, which I, I'm very unaware of. So yeah. he's a, a guy I'd love to run into him again and just have conversations with him and learn from him. So. Wow. Um, where are we at? We're well, I wonder, I wonder if his stand-up um, education or stand-up experience was one of the reasons he wanted you to be original. Because originality is way more important in the comedy world than it is in the magic world. Right. Do you think that that may have been a factor for him? I'm, I'm pretty sure. He, he's a, a very much a purist and... I mean, that's what made him a great teacher, I think, is he let me do what I want to do, but he would nudge nudge a little, you know, words that for some reason, I don't know how many, you do the math, how many years later this <laughs> is, I still remember those words. Wow. And as a kid, I don't, I don't remember anything a teacher ever told me, except I remember that. That's really cool. Um, there's also, this was, I wish I could run into him again. There's a guy that worked a little donut shop on the way to the bookstore. And his name was Napoleon. And he did three tricks, and two of them were coin tricks. And the two coin tricks he did, he did so well. Like, if you, would, if you could imagine him doing 20 minutes of magic at this level, he'd be the best coin magician in the planet. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so if you hear this, Napoleon, hunt me down. <laughs> Napoleon, you worked at... Cincinnati Union Terminal. You worked in a little mini, the miniature donut shop. You know, a little, they pop, a little batter would come out, and these little donuts would float, and then you bat, bag them up, put brown sugar, uh, powdered sugar on, and then he would just do this little coin trick, a little simple uh, appearance and vanish for coin using like a, it's like a Drobrina thumb palm. It's a thumb palm 
kind of edge to edge between your in the web of your thumb and forefinger, but you could hold your hand perfectly flat. Wow. Without your, with your thumb out. Uh-huh. So his hands would be like this. Wow. So we'd take a coin and just kind of do this, and it would just melt away. Then he just mastered the perfect timing on dropping it back in, snap his fingers, and reappear in the hand. And he did it better than any magician I've ever seen. Wow. So you had some some strong coin influence at a yes. formative age. I saw some good magic young. That's important. Which was important. And um, if I continue on, I... Now the first performing magician I, I ever met lived in town. His name was Tom Frank, and I believe he's performing at this convention. Um, have you, you know who I'm talking about? I know about? Tom. Yes, and he's one of the magicians, he's the first real magician, I've, by real I mean a real performer, mm-hmm. that I met and hung out with for hundreds of hours growing up. And, I mean, it's scary, but one day, he, he used to be big into videography, mm-hmm. so I would hang out at his house, and he would film me doing magic for four hours a night for an entire summer. So there's footage of crazy crap somewhere. Oh, that <laughs> needs to that needs to happen. <laughs> it, it, editing needs to happen. Oh, okay. But because um, <laughs> it's just crazy. But um, and Tom is great, and it's so great to see Tom living in California, working at the castle so much. Mm-hmm. I was, I'm so proud of him because I, he used to busk and kind of like just work for every penny he can get just mm-hmm. to any any just loves magic. He, he's a he's one of the best audiences to perform for because he just loves everything about magic. And he's like a little kid. So to see him doing so well at the castle and he has a great wife and uh who's a was a hair hair She's a hair and makeup artist yes. for film and television, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was doing uh Marvel's Agents of Shield. I think she's moved on to something else now mm-hmm. and, and looks like an amazing cook so <laughs> have to come visit yes their new, their new kitchen so um, so that that's my kind of my I call it my like Cincinnati years growing up oh yeah up. that pretty much takes me up into college where are you in your because you're a phenomenal artist and you have like a really great architectural style that I really enjoy I think um, I, I obviously sponge some art from my, my dad being sure. an artist but I never really had any formal training until college. Um, when I went to college... Where'd you go? I went to the University of Cincinnati, Design, Art, Architecture, and Planning, short D-A-A-P for short DAP. And at the time, it was the number one or two school in the, in the country for graphic design and industrial design, just short of Art Center in Pasadena. Okay. And I couldn't get into graphic design because it, they, you needed like be a straight A student, and I was the worst student ever. So, uh, so I got into. Um, oh, let me back up just one second because I just met him downstairs. Another person that helped guide me as a magician when I was in eighth grade was um, uh, his name is Kevin Williams. He's a magician. He's a teacher from Cincinnati and a hobbyist, and he helped. Uh, I would learn magic on my own, and I and, or he let me borrow books. So I would come and just perform for him and his secretary. He was a teacher at my school. And he also had a video camera, so he videotaped me doing tricks and magic and put a little show together. And he was one of those guys that he, he, if he did something that just wasn't right or really cheesy or in the wrong direction, he'd just kind of look at you and kind of laugh. And that's how he, and I just would sense it. And I'd mm-hmm. okay, I need to work on that. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Kevin Williams. I just ran to him downstairs, which was awesome. Um, so I'm back in, let's see where I'm at. College. Drawing. Yes. Um, so I went, I applied to industrial design, which I didn't know what it was at the time. And 
turns out to be the perfect discipline for me because you know industrial design is basically product design, and it's it's a it's a it's a merge of many disciplines. So when you become an industrial designer, you usually have a little bit of engineering. You can draw, you can draft, you can model builds, so you can work in a wood shop, you can, you're not a manufacturer. Sure. Maybe not to a, enough that you could make a prototype. Yes, and, yeah. exactly. You learn CAD, you learn drawing skills, you learn aesthetic skills, you study fine art, and you, you learn composition. And it's very, um, it's a great mix of engineering and artistic ability. And if you, and the great example of the pinnacle of industrial design is like Apple Computer. Oh yeah. This, this the, what they get, what they, how they work on so hard to make something so simple. You know, the first iPhone when the first iPhone came out, I remember Chris had it the first day. Chris Kenner had it the first day, and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, oh wait, I have my Nokia sixty one sixty whatever. I picked up his iPhone. And the first time I swiped a picture across with my finger, like, okay, this just changed everything. Everything. We take it for granted now, but that technology, swiping a picture existed for years. But Apple made it have that little swipe and it slowed down and it ramped like, uh, like you're sliding something down a table and it comes to a slow stop. Or just pinch and swipe and all that we take for granted now, they did it right. It mm -hmm. felt right. So sure. why... You know why you buy one car over another is a lot of a lot of it is the industrial design, the aesthetics, the curves, the colors, the functionality. It's not just art; it's functionality. It's the way the handle feels when you lift it, and the way the seat forms your body. It's ergonomics. So that's industrial design, and that's where I learned a lot of disciplines from drafting to building, and I apply that every day. Every day that I work with David, I'm applying something I learned in industrial design. What was your, what did you want to be when you grew up? What, what did you, because like you had the perfect storm of experience to do what you're doing now. I know, and I didn't really, it somehow just kind of morphed it, in that. Yeah, and so, so I'm curious like if, if doing this was your dream job or if there was something else you had in mind and this kind of happened. Um, and yeah, I know I have to backtrack now a little bit because when I was young, I watched, when I was a lot, like a lot of kids at the time, we watched David Copperfield specials. And I got into it for different reasons. You know, a lot of magicians would watch Copperfield specials, go, oh wow, that was great, or you know, that routine was cool. I got into the details. When he would uh, vanish the radio, he would pretend to lift it up with his knee below the cloth where there wasn't anything under the cloth. Mm -hmm. And he had the cord hanging from it. And it's all these little details that um, I think at one point, I'm probably going to have to go back to this, but I remember when I was in college try, trying to dream up what my senior thesis was, and people were designing the next generation eco toilet or a, or a smart car or whatever it was. Sure. I remember telling my classmates, I'm going to design an illusion that David will perform on a TV special. And this was, you know, at least three years before I worked for David. So what, it was kind of late in the game, but it's just funny that that's turned out to be true. Sure. Tenfold, but <laughs> I don't know if it's a coincidence that art and design and magic all kind of came together. And at the same time, I was kind of following David as a kid. 
and I was appreciating magic for uh, and a lot of and it was funny because back in the old TV specials, I'd watch it with other magicians or we'd watch a tape of it, and most of the magician would say, "Oh, it's this camera trick." I go, "No, no, he," and I would kind of guess the method. Yeah. That no, it's not a camera trick. There's a thing there, and it went behind. And look at the timing. See that piece of cardboard that, and a lot of some of the stuff David does is so well thought out. You just assume it's a camera trick, and it's not. It's not in camera. And uh, I I realized that at a young age, and that's why I appreciate the detail. And I think, am I answering my question? Yeah. And and you think? And I think um, it's that attention to detail, and the art and the design that. Everything fits perfectly right now. Yeah. Seems like it's, everything's coalescing and, it, you know. I really, every, every day I work with David, I feel like I'm drawing on some kind of experience on anything I've ever done comes into play. That includes, and sometimes people laugh when I say this, marching band. You were a marching band? I What'd you play? I was a marching band. Really? I played the mellophone. What'd you play? I played the sax. I was going to guess sax. I was going to guess sax. Nothing worse than playing the clarinet Marching band. You're playing this tiny reed instrument. You're you got a reed that's gonna explode because you're trying to blow so much air through this instrument <laughs> so, so that they can be heard. So you can be heard over the brass, the brass. That's next to you. Yeah. So it's like a joke. That's it's so like funny. Playing a clarinet in marching band is just like a great exercise in mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know you're so right because most clarinet players don't even play on the I field. Know. You just try to play those high notes as loud as you can. Oh my gosh, that's that's great. How big was your band? Um, well, my first high school, my band was pretty big, it was like 280 people. Yeah. And then I changed high schools, and then, so the, and the second band was maybe only, had to have been not much over 100 people. Okay. But what I learned from marching band is coordination of multiple people. So when I help choreograph something on stage, mm -hmm. when, when the guys need to walk four steps and turn a box, You've got to all get there at the yeah, same, time. same time. But two people might be coming from a further distance. They take bigger steps. Yep. And to turn a box takes a second for the start to roll and the casters, casters a turn. So they need to start pushing before the beat. Yes. Right now, it's something I'm working on because if you see the show right now, the first illusion is the motorcycle box. Mm -hmm. They start to push the box on the beat. So by the time it turns, it's too late. It's too late. And we have new guys on there. So I have to do a little rehearsal and say, okay. Start Get out the, the box <laughs> on the half beat, and it's funny because it's amazing how many people don't have rhythm. <laughs> We've had so many sound guys uh -huh. that I could say, okay, and one, two, three, go, and they go one, two, go. I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> you're a sound guy. How? So yeah. I, I, but I digress. The, the things like marching band, everything I draw on, everything I've learned, I've drawn upon. I, I, I use every day. And I think that's just my nature as a sponge. You know, I've been called a sponge, and that's which is I like to. When someone does anything, I'm going to learn from them. You know, I'm learning what settings you have on. I want to learn what you're recording this with. And um, I have this mic, but I haven't used it. I want to know. I didn't know how to buy directional setting. Mm -hmm. It's great. This bag is interesting. What, the what, bag. What nice leather belt came in that? <laughs> the bag uh, is for Dan and Dave T-shirts, but I, I originally had it because I didn't buy a pop filter. And so when I was recording intros, that was what I was using it for. It works pretty good, right? It does. But Paul Wilson mentioned during the episode that I did with him that uh, the bag takes away 
that it looks like a microphone. And so you get a little more comfortable and it's not so. I just feel like I'm talking to a small prisoner. We can take it off if you want. (laughs) I I, I don't have any problem with that. No, it's fine. Um, But it's interesting because it's just like a mystery. It's like you're going to lift it up and it's going to reveal the four spades or something. Well, it's interesting that you say that because... Um, okay, I there's I have a ton of notes. Okay, did because... I complete my thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I whatever. <laughs> so I do have uh, I do have a few points that. Well, what do you want to? Because you're you're the only person that I've ever told a couple of things I wanted to talk about. So you prepared a little bit. What do you want to mention? Or well, there's because uh, I mentioned about detail. Mm-hmm. I had a this epiphany the other day. Um, a few months ago, I did an interview for Poly Magazine. And David interviewed me, which was just amazing. Because when David interviewed me, he got so into it. He was finding stuff about me I didn't know. I was finding stuff about myself I didn't know. And it was almost like a therapy session. Yeah. And it was, we're getting revelations. And there was a question he had was, uh, there was two things. He asked me, why do you try to learn so much? I remember I drive somewhere, I put on a tutorial on lighting or a, uh, a podcast on... You know, I'm writing an article right now on a good friend of mine. I'm listening to journalism and mm-hmm. how to conduct interviews and how to write stories and how to uh, take notes and all that kind of stuff. So he asked me, why do you feel like you have to learn so much all the time? Mm-hmm. And I didn't have an answer for him. And then we stopped the interview. He did a show. During the show, it hit me. And what it was, the answer I found was, I had spent so much wasted time. You know, in high school, I, I slept through every class. When I was in college, I had a year of art history, I, I slept through the whole thing. I was the worst student. I didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, my parents tried to, my mom tried to give me the best of everything. Piano lessons, ballet lessons, tap dancing lessons. Um, you know, she wanted me to be the best person I could be. Sure. And I just threw it all away. I had free tuition in college for as long as I wanted, and I blew it, I threw it away. Yeah. And I feel, I think the reason why I try to learn everything I can, or any, everything I do every day now, is to make up for all those losses. You're atoning for those sins. Exactly. Wow. So that was a nice re- revelation that I got from that interview with David. And just a few weeks ago, uh, I was sitting backstage, I don't always watch the shows when I'm working, unless I've changed something if I change it, and you want to see how it plays. Yeah. Um, the other day I was working backstage a little later than I usually do, and Dave was about to go on stage and says, Hey, watch the watch a slow-mo duck. I got a little something for you. He says, okay. So I go out there and he does this extra little show with the bucket that only a, a magician would appreciate. Mm-hmm. The kind of thing, you know, like doing a hand walk, like when you vanish a coin and you don't just leave your coin and finger palm, but you do an extra little Ramsey subtlety or a hand wash or a little tug with your sleeve. He did a little thing like that and it immediately hit me that one of the reasons why I'm in so much detail now, because I didn't know why, he asked me in my interview, so why do you, why are you into those little details, the minutiae? It hit me that when I was a kid watching David's specials throughout my childhood and high school and college, I was always in awe of those details that David did. So what I realized at that moment was I got my attention to detail from David. And now it's it's such a cool, complete 
like circle or Ouroboro, the self it, self completing circle. Yeah, it's a completing circle that now I get to do those exact same minutiae details. Yeah. For the guy that inspired me to do it. Yeah. And that's just kind of. And now you're and and you're contributing to the inspiration for someone else, and it's going to come back around. I'm being. I was inspired by a person's detail, and now I'm creating that same detail for that same person that inspired me. Mm -hmm. So my it, it's mind blowing. Actually, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's pretty cool. When I realized it was like you know hairstyling on end. I, I, I'm not probably not explaining it right, but it was an amazing feeling to realize that a lot of my character, which daily I contribute to David's show was inspired by David himself. Yeah. So so not only dream job, but like self-fulfilling. I guess so. Like I'm starting to slowly understand it. Yeah. Like every day. So you're not tired of it. You're not, you may be tired because I'm, sure <laughs> I'm sure it's exhausting. It but, is exhausting but, because it's always, you know, it's, it's, when you're constantly having to solve a problem, yeah. it's exhausting. Yeah. You actually feel your body temperature. I, when I'm thinking or performing, my body temperature rises at least 10 degrees. I'm all sweating because, I don't know, it takes energy to process and it wears you out. Sure. And, you know, David's is always thinking creatively, even if it's something that's not show related. He wants to solve something creatively and he either calls Chris or me. And and that's another point that we get to is is about just attitude, just just in life for anyone who's listening to this. For a long time, I would be let's say in the middle of lunch, or I'd be off on a weekend, and they would call me about an idea. And a lot of people do this. The first thing you think is, ah, oh, why is he calling me now? I'm in the middle of lunch. Yeah. I, it's it's my off day. Whatever. I don't think that like that anymore. And this is new. This is maybe only a few months old. When he calls me, I could be in the middle of a sushi dinner. The first thing I think of is, hey, he could call anybody. He's calling me. Yeah. I'm a very lucky man. Yeah. And that is, I'm just like slowly, actually quickly, because this is happening the last few months, it's kind of transforming me. I'm starting to see the world differently by thinking positively. How, how, how did that positivity change? What was the singularity event that... That I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Um, part of it, because I have thought about it a little bit, but part of it may be because, you know, as a co-director, you start becoming more decisive and, and directing more. Mm -hmm. So if we have a rehearsal, I can't just be like, hey, can, can sit back and let it happen. I have, I have to actually go, okay, here's our goal. In an hour, let's do this. And uh, in two hours, let's do this. And let's try to have this for the show. And we video... You start having, uh, when you start directing more, and you start having a little more responsibility, you start understanding it when it happens to you. So when a, a crew member goes, why are we here, or this is taking too long, you start realizing, hmm, that was me. Yeah. That was me going, ugh. So, I think I read somewhere recently, I don't know where it was, it might have been, there's a book called uh, don't sweat the small stuff, uh -huh. which is really an amazing book. Like normally, I don't get into those. Hey, look, it's self kind of yeah. Of, yeah. But every page is like a revelation. And one of them was just I think it was it may not even be in this book, but it was when someone calls you, smile before you answer the phone, and it, your whole attitude changes. Yeah. Instead of going, oh, I can't believe they're calling me now, you, you smile and go, hey. And now 
I changed, completely changed my attitude. When someone calls me, I think, hey, I'm lucky. They're calling. They're, they're calling me. They could call any. They could call anyone else. Yeah, sure. Especially David, who's could call anybody creatively to ask a question. That he, the fact that he calls Chris or he calls me first, you have to look at that as being very lucky. Oh, of course, absolutely. That's so great. I, 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 uh, <laughs> I was in um, a dark place. Uh, for a period of years for reasons I'm not comfortable sharing at this time on a podcast, but maybe in the future. But I, I had to kind of go through a positivity sort of thing. And I, I heard recently that like the neuroscience of positivity and negativity, like the way the neurons fire, a negative thing attaches an imprint in your mind immediately. A positive thing has to be consciously uh, um, enjoyed for 15 seconds before it imprints in your brain. And I, I believe that. I, I think I'm starting to... And so little things like smiling before you answer the phone are training your brain into taking that 15 seconds and then right. nudging it in the other direction. And then also, you know, when, when, when David calls me, as soon as he starts to tell me an idea... Not even a year ago, I would go. It's not going to work. It's, too, it's never going to happen. Uh-huh. It's going to. It's it's can't be built. I don't even think of that anymore. I think, how can it be done? Sure. Maybe there's a way. As he's saying, I need to build this thing that's this thin and expands and it's forty feet wide. <laughs> and you know, it's very easy to go. It's not. It can't build that. It's not going to. That doesn't make any it, sense. It doesn't you matter can't do it. because. Um, even if it can't be built, you'll find a way to get around it. Yeah. You'll find a solution. And also, the other thing is, I'm, I'm learning, this is in the same category, is David's a kind of guy, and you probably know a lot of people like this, where they're always thinking creatively, and it doesn't have a schedule. Yes. It could be in the middle of a movie, middle of dinner, middle of a show, uh, middle of anything, you think of an idea, and if you have the idea, you want to call someone. Mm-hmm. And David calls me, or Chris, mm-hmm. I want to be the last person to, to stop on that idea right away. Yeah. If he's got an idea fresh, he's like, hey, what if we took a, and I go, that's stupid. All right, that's never going to happen. I'm in the middle he's of He's going to stop calling you. <laughs> well, that's not that is, I've just stopped what could be a revolutionary idea. It could yeah. be a cure for cancer. If this was a cure for cancer, I said, I'm in the middle of dinner, I can't answer right now. And I stopped that, that's yeah. a huge mistake. Sure. And so the first thing I do is I let him say it out and I absorb it and I, Try to be positive. I can think of a million ways to not do it, but I don't even, even if I have in my mind, I don't say it. Sure. Because I don't want to stop his creative process. Because that's, you know, he's the boss, mm-hmm. he's a creative force. I don't want to put an end to that at all, even if it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Sure. But, okay, so my question is it, well, it's in two parts. Can people who aren't naturally, consistently, no time schedule creative, people who aren't that way, can they become that way? And then secondly, for people that aren't that way and are trying to become that way, how do you prevent yourself from shutting down your own ideas too quickly? Okay, we'll question out of time. Yeah, 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 I know, I'm sorry. Can people become creative like David is? I believe so. And the reason why is I had a good friend in college, his name was David Hilton. And when he came into industrial design, he could barely draw. 
and industrial designers are normally very good artists. They might industrial design really is more about thinking. You want to problem solve a process, you can always find a way to draw because drawing is really a tool. Mm -hmm. Just because you can't type doesn't mean you can tell an amazing story. Sure. So he couldn't draw at all, and he would spend hours in the studio after every, all the classes were over and people finished their projects. He'd be there till three in the morning with music blasting, and he'd just practice drawing. He'd just open books and start drawing, and he did it for hours every day. And he wanted to be a car designer. And at the time, the University of Cincinnati Industrial Design Program wasn't geared to car design, automotive design. The, the biggest one was Art Center College of uh, Art Center in Pasadena. They were famous for their automotive design program, and they're made incredible artists. They, and there are also people that go to ILM design shit for Star Wars and whatnot. <laughs> I have that written down. We're going to talk uh, about Star Wars yes. a little bit. <laughs> um, and he wanted to be a car designer. Mm -hmm. He opened magazines with cars on it, in it, and he would draw them hours on it till, till the sun came up. And he became a great car designer. He lives in Germany now, and he designs cars for Ford and Jaguar, and, and he's incredible, and he learned it all. And even at one point, he flew off a cliff on a motorcycle and almost ripped his, his, his drawing hand off. They had to put it all back with pins and needles. And during that time when he, his hand was in recovery, he learned to draw left-handed and became a better artist left-handed. Wow. Not saying you can learn creativity, but you can learn at least how to, I saw a witness someone learn how to draw. And, you know, drawing has some sort of creativity built into it. You know, some artists just You're draw making decisions. See, and, you're yeah. making, in automotive design especially, People that draw cars in automotive design are all drawing up cars from their head. They're yes. not copying an existing car. Yeah. That's a different kind of art. So, yes, it is a creative thing. Every line is a decision. Every form is a decision. So, um, Does that answer your question? Um, kind of. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Cause I always sort of, I've always been around creative people. Mm -hmm. So I've always assumed that people can be creative. Um, but I think also people can learn to be creative in different ways. So creativity doesn't always mean producing a work of art. It could be creativity sometimes is problem solving. Sure. Learning how to solve a to, to fix a computer sometimes requires creativity because because a problem solving process is a creative process. You know, it's learning how to connect to things that you would normally not see together or so. I don't know. And then the second part of the question which was was how do you prevent yourself from shutting yourself down too quickly? How do you become more positive about your own creative? Because that's something that I struggle with is I, I, I'll, I'll have an idea and then immediately come up with all these reasons not to do it and talk myself out of it. I don't know. Because it sounds like you're doing that outwardly with, you know, when David calls you and instead of shutting him down. Is there... Um, I know is... Uh, I, try, I find a way. So if David gives me an idea, even if I don't think it's a good idea or think it's never going to happen or whatever my negative, inside negative responses are, I at least start the process. So let's say he wants to design a 
an object that has to do something. Sure. Even if I don't believe in the idea, I'll start to draw it. Because when you start putting it on paper and you start flushing out the idea, it may turn you around. You know, it may. It you may, may have a revelation. Mind. Exactly. Sure. It also can. Also, if you completely flush out on paper or an idea or mock up or whatever, you can also show David that, oh, yeah, my idea wasn't a good idea. But you won't know until you try. Sure. If you just shut it down the words and say, it's not going to happen, I'm not going to even try it. The person that created the idea is not going to buy that. It's just going to look like negativity. It's just, it's just bad uh, collaboration. Yes. Because they don't even get to see their 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 entity take form, even if it's wrong. You know what I mean? Yes, I do, yeah. It's wrong until you make it, and it's wrong. Yeah. So inwardly, maybe starting the process. Yes. I think that's... I think that's... I start the process somehow. Sometimes he says... Um, sometimes he'll say, I have an idea, let's make a model. And let's say it's a model that, okay, if I were to make this model, it might take me three days. Because I would have to find metal, bend metal, get this, whatever. Yeah. And I'll go, okay, wait a minute. Let's make sure this idea works. Let me do it first in Photoshop. Let me make. Let me do a something out of a out of cardboard, one four, you know, one six scale or something. Sure. And that way you can feel the effect. If it feels like it might work, then we'll go to the big model. Sure. So sometimes I try to think of it in a practical way. Um. Because he's really big on getting feeling the magic. So let's say he wants to banish the microphone in front of us. Okay. And before we even work on a method, he wants to see, he wants to, it has to feel like an effect. It could be an incredible, technically great vanish. Sure. But it doesn't feel like a vanish. He senses something's wrong. Okay. And sometimes. It's just about how you drop the cloth. You know, when you lift the cloth and you drop it and the person's gone, there's a thousand ways to do that. You can pull the, the cloth can fall. Sure. The cloth can be pulled down quickly. Mm-hmm. The cloth can be pulled to the side. The cloth can implode to the center. The cloth can be ripped into four pieces and fly over the audience. There's so many ways to do that. And it's the same trick, but just the smallest things make a difference. Yeah. Does that answer anything? Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> well, so, okay, let's use that as an example. Let's use that that vanish and that uh, sort of metaphor as an example. Or uh, a metaphor. You know what I mean. Let's use that as an example. How do you, how do you make the decision which one works, which one's right? And like you said earlier, audience. But there's still... I mean, as far as effect or... Yeah, as far as like, so how do we tear away the cloth? Um, usually that's a David call, and he's usually good at that. We'll, we'll, and you can't fake it. Sometimes we'll do it in Photoshop by like pretending like you're pulling two pieces of cloth away. It doesn't work. Sure. We just grab some bed sheets, tie them to string, whatever, and pull them in front of what's supposed to, or let's say you want to manage a person and they're just standing on a road case. You'll do something as simple as them just jumping off the side. Mm-hmm. And then pulling the cloth off. Yeah. Which is like a basic, you know, like a, like a metamorphosis kind of thing. Sure, sure. And we'll just keep doing it. We'll do. We'll pull the cloth up ten different ways. Pull it up, down, left, right. So you just workshop it, basically. You, you do it because nothing will replace the real thing. No drawing, no 3D rendering. Yeah. No 
virtual reality mode, whatever, it's going to replace physical wood fabric. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Something that a 2D digital does not ever replace seeing something. The vibrations in the air. Anything. Yeah. In front of you, the way the light bounces off the cloth makes a huge difference, and you can't replace that with a model mm -hmm. or, a, or a 2D drawing or anything. Sure, sure. But sometimes you have to if it's something difficult to do. Yeah. Um, the other day, uh, we were working on a bench or something, and to make a model, mock-up would take hundreds of dollars in manpower in a week and a half, and might not be right and start all over again. So I did it in Photoshop layers, and I just drew a square cloth and, and just moved it around and clicked off layers behind to make something vanish. Mm -hmm. And you know, he was like, oh, hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, <laughs> it, it gave him like a, his first impression of an effect uh -huh. that we were talking about earlier. And then, no, what if the cloth uh, should get smaller as it vanishes, not just rise? And I did that and made a big difference. Okay. Mass and composition and all this. So that was an example of using Photoshop to get an idea over quickly before we go to something that we just spend so much time on and it would just be laborious. Sure. And a waste of time and money. So. Yeah. What's next? <laughs> did I, I answer a question? Because I make sure I'm rambling. That's, it's, that's the point. The ramble? Yeah. Well, I guess, see, I'm not used to podcasts. I just started. This your podcast, one of the first podcasts I've ever listened to. Really? Yes. Well, that's because too bad you, for you. you. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many good ones out there. You watch a lot of interviews. They're cut and they're edited and they cut back and forth and they're tight. Yeah, yeah. And to listen to these podcasts where people are kind of stream of stream of consciousness and kind of digging deep into their soul and it's it's kind of neat. I would at first I would go, God, who would want to listen to something for over? When you do an interview on YouTube. Over six minutes, you're like, okay. Yeah. But these podcasts, you know, Adam Rubin and Aussie uh, uh, Wind, two hours and 15 minutes, I'm like, don't stop. I know. You know? Can I hire these guys to come in my living room and just sit and, and talk? And just sit and talk, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, it's great. Listen to Aussie chew on food. It's great. Oh, yeah. That's a, that episode is I, really I, I, a I wild really, ride. I really love it. I learned a lot about Adam, who's so creative, and I, I love the way he thinks. And... He's, a, he's a cool guy. But, um, yeah, I I I really love the the podcast style of just a couple of people talking, you know. And because it is, it does get. I deep. have a huge fear of boring people. And that's yeah. One of the reasons I talk fast. My magic is really. I'm like Chad Long fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Just talk fast, and I. Chad's episode is next week, by the way. Really? Oh. <laughs> and I'm scared to death to bore people. Yeah. And that's why I talk fast. When I do magic. It's like. That's why you wanted to prepare. A little bit. Yeah. Why? Listen to other podcasts. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Let me find the most boring one and see if I at least be better than that one. Yeah. They're all they're all gold in one way yes, or another. Exactly. And that's like, because I I there's one podcast that I listen to in particular. It's the one that I just ripped off to do this, <laughs> and I've listened to like 200 episodes. That's the weirdest. Uh, what's it called? You made it weird with Pete yes, Holmes. I listened to 10 minutes of it this morning. Yeah, I love it, and it's. It's him talking for almost, you know, at least two hours every time with some person. And they're all fascinating. For, I get something out of every single episode. And that's kind of what I want for this. And I'll already, I, I already, already you have you can succeeded. find someone that has my similar voice and you can script a few things. 
Okay, well, let's do that. Right. Okay. Shudgawa. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, so I want to know, like, what some of your passions are outside of working with David. And, and that's going to end up bleeding into your wedding ring and stuff like that. Um, passions. Okay. I always had a passion for cinematography. Uh-huh. And I remember as a kid, I always played in, in my parents' house back in Cincinnati, even as like an eight-year-old. We had a dimmer on our living room lamp. And I would always just lower it down to like, oh, it's cool at this level. And, and I remember knowing the word cinematography, but I didn't know how to pronounce it. I called it, I don't know, cinema photography. Cinema photography or something. Skinematography. <laughs> Cinem- something. And I just remember jokingly, I'm, I'm probably, this is all in my head, but I remember jokingly saying, well, one day when I learn how to pronounce it, I'll become a cinematographer. Oh, that's but, funny. But I would love to become a cinematographer. It always, I always feel like I'm very comfortable behind a camera. Mm-hmm. I love creating images. And I've always liked that, whether it's even drawing. But uh, I've always loved photography, and I just been into photography for a while and just starting to kind of feel like I'm becoming a photographer and same with videography. I'm still kind of in the technical side where I'm worried about too much technical stuff. Uh-huh. I just had an epiphany. I don't call it epiphany. Uh, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I have to look it up. Epiphany. Epiphany. Breakfast at epiphanies. <laughs> um, an epiphany is not a, a piff dog. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Just a couple of days ago, I was on uh, an Apple TV channel called uh, M- M2- M2M. It's the Made to Measure Network. I love that. Yes. Okay. I was watching. So good. Those films. A are documentary mm-hmm. on Mila Jovovich mm-hmm. through the eyes of Peter Lindbergh. Okay. And it was about. It was her and another model, Eva. Probably unpronounceable or something. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a famous Russian model. I'm sure. So sorry. She'll never hear this podcast. So I'm sorry I messed up your name. Eva Hergozabalga, va va na na na, something like that. <laughs> Is this awesome powers now? Is that what's happening? <laughs> no, that's a, that's a, um, uh, Zoolander. Oh, that, oh God, you're right. It is Zoolander. Let me introduce you to my assistant. Matinka Devoga na na na. Um, so it's a documentary on Mila. Through the eyes of Peter Lindbergh, yeah. a famous photographer, which I should have known who that was, which I didn't, sad. And through this 55-minute documentary, they're talking about, you know, Mila's talking about, when he, when he takes my photograph, it's just, it's free, and, and then the images capture the soul, and the essence, and the emotion, mm-hmm. and 55 minutes of words like essence, and emotion, and soul. And all of a sudden, I realized, every time I show a picture of mine, or someone else's too, my wife or a friend, I go, hey, look how cool the shadow is. Hey, got the, look at the depth of field, the f-stop. Yeah. You know, I use the shadow depth of field. Look at the composition, how the flare comes from the corner. I talk about technical stuff. And this guy, an amazing photographer, everything was about, oh, you could see the soul, you know. It goes back to your dad's drawings. And, and, and it was grabbing my, yeah, nice. Yeah. And it was, and it reaches into the soul and it grabs you and feel the emotion and, you, you move with the dance of the photograph, and I'm like, whoa. I'm, used, I'm kind of, it's, that kind of hit me, like, oh my God, I really, and I knew I did it. Yeah. It's like, you know you do something bad until someone goes, until it really sinks in, then you know you have to change it. Yeah. I'm like, wow. 
every time I look at a photograph, I think technical. When I should be looking at what is that photo, what's the essence of How do I feel about it? Exactly. Yeah. And that should, that it translates to anything creative. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't, a dancer, a ballet dancer might be thinking of a line or an extension or a position, but when it's, transcends, when it transcends technical is, it's a, it's, it's a wave of emotion or yeah. happiness. It's something. And I'm still learning that. Yeah. You kind of extend outside of the medium. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of a revelation as far as, uh, what are we talking about now? It was talking about outside influences, photography, yeah. So yeah. that kind of hit me. And I think that's the same with magic. You can, if you want to bring this back to a magic podcast. <laughs> Whatever. Know, is, is it really about the side steel or what grip he used? Yeah. No, it's about, did, I, did that performer connect with his audience? Did he enriched our lives somehow. Yes. Think about something. Yes, preach. I love it. <laughs> no, I love it. Not preaching. No, 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 no. I'm not. Observing. I'm not talking. Yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about soapbox. I'm talking like that's the gospel yeah. that you're yeah. saying right there. It's. It, it really has nothing. But but it's it fights me a little bit. Yeah. I love details of technique. Oh yeah. When I get magic, I got into the hard moves. You're amazing. Technique. Like yeah. The top change and. You know, me and my friend Larry Fong, the cinematographer and an amazing magician, spent two weeks, last, for hours two weeks ago, on nothing but the David Williamson top change. Oh, it's so <laughs> glorious. And it's like, my goal in life is to do it as great as David Williamson. Mm -hmm. And Chris Kenner keeps telling people that mine is better than David's. I'm like, don't! don't, don't <laughs> no, there's, there's no way my top change is better than David Williamson. David Williamson is the best top change. The first time I saw him kind of do it, I was looking uh -huh. over his shoulder. And I couldn't see it. I go, well, hey, did, you just, did you just do a top chain? Because the carp's different now, and the hands are relatively close to each other. And then it's too late. You're laughing because he's saying, eh. he could, yeah. I didn't. I, I, I dropped out a lot of my magic history in there. I need to get to. Like my first magic fest, illusions is very important. Illusions restaurants very important. So make okay. Sure, make sure I get. Sure I'm gonna write. To, I'll write it yes, down. Illusions restaurant. That involves a lot of a lot of my friends. And an Illusion restaurant was just an amazing, there's amazing history in Illusion's restaurant that was never anywhere else. Okay. Which we'll get to that. We will get to that. Illusion's restaurant. Um, we're talking about. We were talking about cinematography and, and. I feel comfortable behind the camera and, and I just, I love doing anything creative. I hate doing something that almost feels, uh, I mean, it's hard to say like it's a waste of time. Some yeah. things you need to do because, like relaxation and sure. chores and stuff. But I also feel like I need to be creative mm -hmm. every day. I need to feel like I've accomplished something that. Where does that drive me. come from? I have no idea. I think that's one of those unanswered questions. Is and uh, and, I, and David, we're, David and I are very similar. It's like after a few days where you're doing something that's tedious. Mm -hmm. It's non-creative. You feel like you need to just work on an idea because there's something about creating something new that's exciting, right? Yeah. So I, you know, and I try to focus on having different projects. I just my friend Sebastian Claret. I just shot his new headshots a couple of days ago, and that gave me a little nice, great four-day project that involved photography and some retouching and 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 creativity and lighting mm -hmm. 
Um, it's a great read. And because they're headshots and, and promo shots, you also got to try and communicate that emotion. And exactly. That, and I yeah. think, was that before or after that epiphany? Hopefully it was after. <laughs> it might have been before. You might have to call Sebastian and say, we got to redo the whole yeah, thing. <laughs> we do. Come fly back from France. Or, no, I'm going to fly to France because I like France. Uh, I just, one of my, I, we have to talk about him too. One of my mentors and my greatest friends is Larry Fong, mm -hmm. the cinematographer. who just finished shooting Kong Skull Island. He did Batman for Super, Superman. 300, Super 8, Watchmen, Sucker Punch. Thousands of commercials, music videos, just the list goes on. Oh God, I wasn't going to reveal. When is this release? <laughs> uh, probably like in a month. Okay, I just wrote an article on Larry Fong, and it probably should be out by now. And it's just—it's almost like an excuse to learn more from my mentor. To write. What do you think I'm doing right now? <laughs> That's the whole concept. To. Uh, to interview and ask questions and learn more about like a really good friend is almost like a selfish indulgence. But I'm so glad to, to turn it into a project where I got to photograph him and write a whole story and kind of make connections, you know, because kind of a quiet, shy person. It was nice to be able to go through his history and make a few connections on his creative process. Mm -hmm. So that'll be hopefully published by the time you read, you're listening to this. What, what is that going to be in? Uh, Poly Magazine, Poly Magazine, which is uh, in a second issue. It's an arts and culture magazine based out of Cincinnati, Ohio, from a good friend of mine. And uh, I was in the first issue, so check that out. That's very cool. Poly Magazine. Available on Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> Available, I have no idea. Polymagazine.com. Cool. In the first issue, David interviews me. That was, we were talking about that earlier, that sort of therapy session. Yeah. Where David interviewed me, and it was so great because we sat between shows. I set it up, and... I had a list of questions or topics and I kind of put them up on the board in front of us. And as David was asking me questions, we were just both giggling because we we're learning so much about each other. Mm -hmm. And you'll see it on the, uh, uh, you'll see our interview, which is on, it's 20 minutes of video. You see us kind of chuckling and, and getting into it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it was over, because we were just going to interview and then he was gonna, I was going to go back home and start, you know, importing it. He's like, okay, wait a minute, we have another some time between the next two shows. Let's, let's continue this. He was so into it. it wow, great. that's great. And, and we, we we promised each other we'd do it again in a few years, just for whatever magazine, just interview each other. Yeah. Because you learn so much kind of having this discussion with no phones going off and you're yeah. not worried about work. You're just asking each other questions. Yeah, yeah. And it's great to learn that much about your boss and to have your boss learn that much about me. And I learned so much about myself. So anyway, and... Right now, the same thing's happening. It's just, you know, we're just, I'm rambling big time. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, okay, where are we at? Sorry. Well, I, I, I just think it's lovely. Like, in, in this time where everything is so immediate and so, uh, you know, I've got to have it right now, to be able to sit with phones off and to talk and to connect and to really, you know, get into the weeds with somebody is really... Right, and that's what I didn't know about podcasts. Like I said, they're new to me. Yeah. To hear someone just talk and it's not, you don't, do you edit? A little bit. I, I, a little bit. But, but not to really. Hear no. someone, to feel like you're really unabridged, someone talking and, and it's not so structured, it's kind of, was neat. I was like, 
like I said with Adams, after two and a half hours, I'm like, I keep going. I want five. I want six hours of this. I just want to keep playing on loop. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring, you know. Dead space. Yeah, I'll take that up. <laughs> well, when I was learning how to interview, one of the things that I was bad at that I'm glad I read was uh, allowing the person to answer. You know, you ask a question, and sometimes there's silence. Yeah. And if the interviewer goes, so let's say anybody goes, so tell me about your childhood, and there's silence, and let's say the guy doesn't answer right away, mm -hmm. then the interviewer goes, was it a tough childhood? And, and starts answering for them. Yeah. You just, they start leading you the just question. just derailed the yeah. train of thought. Mm -hmm. That person was probably, and th this is the wrong question. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be about childhood. It would be something more important. Sure. How did you, you know, how did you feel when, when you lost your job? Yeah. And then let's say there's was that hard for three you? seconds of silence. You go, was it hard for you? Did you, did you decide to go another route? You just derailed that guy's thought. Yeah. And the thing I learned in, in the interviewing is you just have to just wait. You can't be afraid of the silence. Yes, because in that silence, they're formulating an answer. And if you cut it off, you just might have just derailed a pure answer that comes right from the gut. Mm -hmm. you know? So, so I'm, I'm experiencing this now. I see you hitting that silence. I'm going... <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't... My, like, I... That podcast that I was just talking about... Um, Pete interviewed Gary Shandling right before he passed away. Oh, I love Gary's uh, just a treasure. And Pete talks about, uh, he just filmed a show. <laughs> this is the most I've ever talked about this other podcast, which is fine because I, I want you to listen to it because now you love podcasts. Yes. Um, but he talks about how he listened to that episode with Judd Apatow. And there's a part in that podcast where Judd looked at him and goes, I wish you would have asked him about this. And it was, Pete did one of those things where he, he was thinking about a joke to make a joke instead of, you know. And cut. Yeah, and, and cut out this, this what could have been a really powerful Amazing. moment. Yeah, powerful yeah. moment. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I'm doing my best. <laughs> no, that's great. I think, I think obviously Wendy's has been every podcast. He's just. I think, I think my subscriber rate would dramatically reduce if Ozzy was in every podcast. <laughs> they would be hardcore loyal fans, but if he was calling me now, you want to put him on? Yeah. <laughs> Here, hold on. We'll have to edit out if it's bad. Of course. Hello? Hi, Omar. Hi. Hi. I'm sorry to bother you. I have a silly question. Oh, okay. Is that David's house? Yes. Yes. And how do I get the light bulbs out of these silver things? Oh, in, in the box, in the box that the uh, lights came in is a small suction cup. And you take the suction cup and you stick it on the front of the light, the flat, you know, the flat piece of glass in the front, and you should be able to pull them out. But it's basically a suction, you might, you might be able to do a tape. If you take some gaff tape and stick it on the front of the MR16, which is the lamp, you might be able to stick it enough where you can pull it out with the tape. Thank you. Okay. It wasn't David. Damn it! I was going to surprise and go, "Hey, you're on. You're on live." <laughs> well, I'm debating whether or not to leave that in right now because. Oh, and you smiled before you answered the. Did phone. I? You did. Are you serious? I, yeah, you did. Wow. Old dogs can learn new tricks. Look at that. 
But I, I'm debating or not whether or not to take that in or out or leave it in or take it out because, um, because one, you smiled, and two, hearing you give that direction was interesting to me because it was like, you know, exactly what to do and how to describe and it and all of this. She didn't, she might have had trouble getting hold of the maintenance guy that put away the boxes that had the suction cups. Okay. Said, well, if you take some gaff tape, you might be able to stick it on the front of the glass and pull. And she's basically moving an MR16 light bulb out of the socket and you can't get your fingers around the bulb because it's flush. Uh-huh. So they provide a little tiny suction cup okay. that you can stick on the front pole. So she's changing out some lights that I just put out in David's house to light up some uh, cool arcade games. So. Oh, cool. So that's that was what that was, listeners. <laughs> um, I just let's dip back into cinematography real quick before we move on to some other stuff. But how do you how do you develop? Because you talked about you know being in college and not and sleeping through your fine art classes. Yes, sad, very sad. Because now I would, as a cinematographer, I would kill to know painter because. Cinematographers always lecture about, you know, study the great masters of painting because they understood light and how it falls on faces and uh-huh. backgrounds and composition, and I slept through all that. So, it's just really sad that I can't tell you, you know, Renoir from Lacoste. <laughs> um... <laughs> Art jokes, lol. Um, oh, gosh. That's funny. But so how are you developing your eye now? Because you've got a great, I mean, you have a great sense of aesthetic, and that I'm sure comes yeah, from... Yeah, I'm going to look at 22, because if I spend too much time learning, then I'm not doing enough doing. Creating, yeah. And, and like my, my friend Larry Fong said, you know, I was, I was learning other... A few years ago, I was trying to learn how to, do, how to frame up people, to shoot over the shoulders, eye lines mm-hmm. in composition for, for cinematography. And I was showing them little test shots because I was going to like a tutorial that said, practice doing it over shoulder with a 50 millimeter and do the same shot, frame the exact same way, but do it with a hundred. And I was showing Larry my test, like, just shoot something. Take a short one, two page script and shoot it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and I did, and I learned a lot. I wrote a one, two and a half page script, just like a little scene out of a movie that I just made up on the spot. And I called my friends over, and we shot it one night, and edited, and made a little short film, and uh, and I learned. But and that's broke back Badger Mountain three. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Um, uh, but you know, Larry taught me. You know, I was starting to get proud of the fact that I'm a sponge. Oh, I can learn anything from anybody. Show me something, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And uh, and Larry, one point to speak with. That's why he's a great mentor. Said, you know you need to start doing more because as a sponge, you're getting oversaturated. When you get oversaturated, you can't take any more information. Things start to leak out too. Exactly. You need to squeeze it out, apply it, and then you have room to absorb more. Great. And now I'm trying to do more. And I also credit, you know, David for being really, he's really sensitive to the fact that I love cinematography and any chance I, he can give me, he'll let me shoot something for the show or for, uh, you know, if he's doing something for uh, one of his appearances on a TV show, he'll let me light it and, and direct it, mm-hmm. whatever. So, you know, he knows that, you know, the opening of the show is a short film I shot in a couple of days. 
that's everyone sees every night uh, at the top of our show, and that was fun. And uh, like I said, anything that's not live in the show, I've either shot or directed, so sure. or edited. So you know, it's great that I have. It's great that my job is has an, an amazing opportunity to practice what I want to do eventually. You know what I'm yeah. Saying? You know, how many people can say that, you know? That's really great. Do you ever, even though it is so fulfilling and so, you know, you have these creative outlets within your job, do you get burned out? Do you have to take maybe a couple days or something to recharge? And um, I'm fortunate now I get to recharge a little bit every week. Okay. You know, we used, I used to work, and, and, and the crew, they're, they're amazing because they work seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And just... You know, for 18, 19 years, I, yeah, I work seven days a week. And just recently, I, I started taking weekends off. And I started working, instead of working till one in the morning or two in the morning, whenever we found, felt like we were finished, I now stop at seven. Mm -hmm. So I start early and do as much as I can during a day, really concentrate. And it's, it's nice to be able to concentrate creatively during a day, knowing that I have to stop at seven because then I even sometimes work faster. You've set your own deadlines. Yes. I'm going, oh my God, I have three ideas and I don't want them to wait till tomorrow. I'm going to finish them now. Yeah. So I concentrate and it's actually more productive to have a schedule. And I know that that's kind of contrary to a lot of creative people that, oh, we're just going to we'll keep, you know, tinkering until. Let it happen naturally. Yes. Yeah. And then it's when the sun's coming up and we're coming up with ideas. Um, and sometimes it has to happen, but I think I get, I'm getting more done with a schedule. Do you have a like a ritual that gets you juiced up to like um, bang something out? Or it, it is, but sometimes it's kind of slow. I'm, I'm one of those guys that the first ninety, if if you give me ten minutes to do something, nine minutes is thinking about it. Yeah, and then that one minute, it's it's a whirlwind of shit happening. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, because I'm one of those guys that formulates a lot of stuff in their head, even like music edits. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, David wanted a major change in a music edit beginning of our, our new piece. He says, I want to use this piece of music instead. And I knew this song enough, because I used it for somewhere else in the show, that while I was sitting in the bathroom for 20 minutes, I was <laughs> a little too much information, I guess, but a lot of amazing, and David will attest to this, a lot of my most creative moments happen on the toilet, just, just so you know. Great. Something about you know, flesh and pork. Now we're really getting into the, the good stuff. <laughs> I was able to completely edit the piece in my head, uh -huh. and then all I had to do was go into work and Chop make it those up, cuts, make it and they worked. And I remember David asking, well, how are you going to do that? Because that's it's a difficult edit. It's going from this type of music to this type of music. How does that work? And I said, don't worry, I have it in my head. Mm -hmm. And I went to work, and it worked. And he was surprised. And I'm, I'm saying with drawing. Um, you know Guillermo del Toro? Yes. He's known for his sketchbooks. His sketchbooks are dense. Every page, mm -hmm. every quarter inch is words and tiny little sketches and scribbles and it's amazing looking. It's like something out of uh, you know, Indiana Jones or something. Seven. <laughs> exactly. Seven. <laughs> but with more, more pictures. Yeah. And I love that and mm -hmm. I wish I could do that. But the way I work is I, I kind of, I, I figure it out in my head and then I so that when it. it hits the paper, yes, it's already. I'm not interpreting. I'm just <coughs> transferring. I don't know if that's the best process, but that's the way I work. And uh, a friend of mine that's a designer that I worked with a little bit when I was in college in an internship, 
uh, his name is Dave Lightori. He called me. I was talking about this thing because he, he was showing me his notebook of sketches. And he opened to a sketch of a product he designed, which was in Apple stores a few months ago. It's a, it's a little wooden, it's a little speaker box, mm -hmm. but it's made out of bamboo. Okay. And uh, he showed me the drawing. He goes, that's the drawing. I made one drawing and then kickstarted it, and there it is on the shelf at Apple. And I said, that's amazing. That's like me. I, you didn't do like 40 sketches? Yeah. He says, well, we're snipers. What's well, a sniper? Oh, yeah. A sniper yep. is you don't zigzag around the idea with 40 ideas. You find the right idea and you do it right away. Yes. So. you Okay, you're saying something that I think not enough people say, especially in the creative field. Which is, you know, you gotta you gotta try all these different iterations, and it'll come to you over time. But and sometimes you have to. Of course. But if there's a right answer, why not go to it? Yes. And and it's interesting because Blake, on his podcast, said when he does interviews, uh, he says, "What can you do for us? I can give you what fifty bad ideas, and one what was it? I can do give you fifty. I can't guarantee any good ideas, but, but I, I can give you, give you bad you, ones. Yeah. And I, the first thing I thought is, why would you work on fifty bad ideas? Give them one good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's different for everybody. Yeah, sure. Because ideas can easily become, of course, yeah, great ideas. Yeah, because for for you know for a it's lot a of process. people it is a process. I think that's so cool, and I think that sniper is the perfect. Yeah, he called a sniper. He showed me this one little sketch on you know, this little moleskin, tiny address book size thing, and and there it is on the shelves of that shelves of Apple you know Apple Store. And he said, "You're a sniper. You." He, he said, I prefer a designer to come up to me and show me the right idea than to show me 20 bad ideas. I keep going back to your dad drawing those portraits and him capturing that the person picture. sitting there the one time. Because he gathered a crowd. Yeah. And, you know, most you go, to, you go walk down any street where there's, like, vendors and you see a, yeah. a portrait artist. Yeah. You don't see a crowd. No. Maybe it's different now because we have cell phones and selfies. And sure. Phones and, but back then, he would have a crowd of 50, 60 people yeah. at a county fair watching him paint. It was almost like a show. But I just love that, you know, every single time, he's got one chance and he nails it. Yeah. And it's and a moving, you, living person. Yeah. So, and so you're kind of creating this moving, living thing in your head. Right. And then nailing he's it on the paper. He's good at the essence. He yeah. can... Somehow in his art, he does painting and you feel the peace or the tranquility or the, or the turbulence mm -hmm. of the scene or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's, I, I don't think you can't teach that, I don't think. Yeah. And that's the same with David. When he does an effect, it has to feel a certain way. Something, if something's not right, he might say it's because the music's wrong. He might be right, he might be wrong, but what he is right is that something's wrong. He feels that something's off. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot. He'll... he'll Something will happen in illusion goes, uh, that didn't sound right, something's wrong. And let's say it's from the soundboard. Well, nothing's changed. It's the levels are the same, it's at zero. The computer says uh, the EQ is at that shape. The speakers are plugged in, nothing should be different. And it was, something's wrong. And, and most sound guys will go, oh, nothing I can do. Everything says there it's correct. Yeah. And you find out, here's a funny, this, this has nothing to do with this answer probably, but I was walking to the audience a couple of years ago, and I said, something sounds funny. Something sounds funny, and I was walking through the house, and I walked up to sound guy, is there anything different with the speakers? Anything going on? No, everything's the same. Numbers the same, everything's perfect, everything's exactly how it should be. Hmm, it just sounds like, you know, it feels... 
doesn't feel wide. It feels like everything's kind of, you know, centered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything's fine. And I talked to the, the engineering, the sound engineers that work the theater, who are very smart people. Oh, we haven't touched a thing. Everything, oh, numbers say everything's okay. Uh, you know, we haven't touched a thing. The board is at preset one, and this PQ is registered for this piece of music and whatever. Yeah. And I noticed for a few days, and about a week later, someone came to me and goes, oh, we found a problem. The whole show's been playing in mono. <laughs> serious? And I was, first of all, like, wow, that's a, how long have we been playing the show in mono? Yeah. Playing a theatrical show with sound effects and incredible sweeping symphonic music in mono. You know, like a 1940s movie. Yeah, right? yeah. Right? And then the next thing I thought is, how am I the only one to hear this? Yeah. The only one in the theater to, to hear this. And I don't know what question I'm answering, but yeah, but it was just amazing to me that, you know, it comes to detail. Yeah. You know, every, like just when I walk into the theater at work, just in my peripheral, like, what's wrong? something's wrong. I'll turn my head and mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the display screens for David's signs is, is out. No one else will notice that. Or, and the only other person would be Chris. When we're backstage, we have a sixth sense for the show. Yeah. David will be doing his talk and blah, 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 and it'll be in the background really quiet, like echoing to a hallway. But if there's anything wrong with the show, you see Chris and I will be like, Perk up, yeah. Something wrong? Look up, what's going on? Why? <laughs> because we know the rhythm. If we yeah. know the heartbeat of the show. Yeah. And if it varies by half a second, sometimes we're like, what's wrong? Something break? <laughs> and it, it's in, even people on stage won't even notice it. Sure. So it's just an interesting hypersensitivity to detail. Is it just for the show? Or just things related to that? Or do you find that you're hypersensitive just in general? And they, Because I know that for myself... Um, I'm very detail oriented like that. So when I go into a room, I'm scanning everybody, getting the feel of the room, understanding what the different dynamics and the little groups are, and all this kind. Of, do you do that a as little well? bit? Yeah. But I think I do it more for fun. You know. Sure, of course. That's a great question. I don't know if I do that. Now, see, now I, I have to think about it. Go ahead. When I when I walk out out of this room, I'm the. I know I, I do pay attention to detail as far as if I'm walking down the when we walk down here I looked at the lighting in the hallway. The, yeah, the, yeah. The, like the carpet. Is the carpet the same color temperatures? I probably looked at that instinctively, but yeah. I wasn't I didn't need to be critical about it, so I didn't sure. bother myself. Sure. I'm more worried about this podcast. <laughs> and I'm just loving this lighting right now. Look at the shut my shadow back. So I'm like sitting in this like shadow. That is really cool. Is that cool? Yeah, that is cool. Your hair looks great, by the way. Oh, thanks. I cut it just for the podcast. <laughs> oh, well. Listeners. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Okay. Because I'm super interested in... How, okay, how many times have you seen the original trilogy and the original trilogy? <laughs> well, I think the original trilogy, I was 11 when it came out. I saw it maybe two months after it was released. Okay. You know, back then it was movies were out longer. Mm-hmm. And no, you know, you don't know what's special, you know, until years later. You don't know mm-hmm. Blade Runner is a great movie until twenty years later or mm-hmm. whatever. So I saw it once probably, and then the next time you see it was probably on a VHS tape. You know, those days, ten years later, it took forever for something to 
to come out. So, and then finally, when it comes to uh, movie comes to Blu-ray, you know, I probably watched it three or four times, but I've seen it that many times. Really? Yeah. Okay. But you know, I collected trading cards and the figures, so I was into it. I was into the design. Yeah. I love the designer, uh, you know, Rafa Corey, of course, the oh my gosh. concept art. Yes. And the, speaking of the essence of soul, whatever those five drawings he did to, for George Lucas to help sell the movie to studios, everything is there. Right? Everything. There's that painting with this C-3PO C-3PO and R2 in, in, the, in the desert. Sons. Yep. That's Star Wars. Yeah. And even in their faces and their emotion, in that, even in R2-D2, there's character. Yeah. And that's like my dad, you know, you can't teach. How do you paint something and it's not a technical thing? You feel that world. Yeah. And that's rough recording. It's incredible. And then the technical person that drew up those to become production is Joe Johnston, who is now a director from uh, Jumanji to um, Cap Captain America, Jurassic, one of the Jurassic Parks. Okay. Two or three. Sure. Um, so he's a director now, but he was an artist and model builder, I think, from the original trilogy. And Across from that toy store, that train station where I was learning magic, mm -hmm. was a bookstore. Mm -hmm. And in that bookstore, I would look at two things. I would go to the Bill Tarr books. Okay, well, I'm not uh, familiar. Bill Tarr was a slide of hand books. Now You See Me, I think they were called or something. And they were all done by illustrate incredible pencil drawings. If you okay. look up, talk to any older magician, because you're young. Yeah. <laughs> you talk to any older magician, all the Bill Tarr slide of hand books. All the drawings were drawn by fine artists, so they're hand, wow. and they're all taught in photos. So there might be minimal text. Build your ball and vanish. Sure. Start with between these two fingers, mm -hmm. and the rest is pictures. Pictures. So you'd see almost a, a slideshow of photos, all hand drawn, beautifully hand drawn, of how to vanish a billiard ball, or palm a card, yeah, or do a Charlie Eight card or something. And I would look at those books and memorize two or three things. I didn't, couldn't afford the book or whatever because sure. I'm too, too busy playing video games with money <laughs> that I stole out of the register, um, <laughs> which is my parents' money, so it's just like... <laughs> so I'd memorize a move and then go back to the rest, the little kiosk restaurant, sit there with that card and learn that palm. Mm -hmm. And, oh, what was that? Where does that finger go? What did that look well, like? Back to the bookstore. Yeah. Open the page, close it, go back. Yeah. Um, and in that same bookstore was a series of books called the Star Wars Sketchbooks. And they're little half-sized books full of sketches by Joe Johnston. And there were sketches of every, you know, everything from X-Wing Fighters to Death Stars. And I just studied those nights. I want to draw like this someday. And even to this day, when I'm sketching, every day when I sketch, it's pretty much to go to make it to honor that those drawings because I wow. love Joe Johnson's style of drawings. It's, it's it's technical. It's the op almost the opposite of Ralph Corey. Mm -hmm. It's a technical. It's line work. It's and his style. Had, you know, Star Wars has all the detail, little nooks and cracks and mm -hmm. pipes and shapes and squares. Um, how do we get into the subject? Star I asked Wars. about Star Wars. I was really big into the design. Uh -huh. So the movie as a whole, I probably have to, until now. Still can't even tell you the plot. You know, I know it's really simple. But, yeah. But the hero's the, journey. Exactly. Yeah. But the simplest, but the what I really got into was the design. Uh -huh. And and that's what a lot of people 
love about Star Wars is the designs. Sure. Is the fact that everything aged and and the and the textures and the details. You know, nothing was good, shiny and looked like flying saucers. Uh-huh. Everything looked like they could have been built in a garage here. You know, so I got into design, and that was a huge influence to me as a kid. Wow. And a lot of people, so I don't feel it's special. You know what I mean? Well. I mean, your ring. <laughs> yeah, but that's like just... Your deck of cards. As far as your, advancing you know, in art form, yeah. it's an influence, but I don't think it's as far as... I'm just trying... I don't know why I'm putting a judgment on it. Yeah. But I just feel like a lot of people are influenced by Star Wars. So. Well, sure. Because it's, you know, it's, it's undeniably one of the most impactful series that's ever been created. But, I mean... Some, I got to do something in the show, which is, is a dream come true, which is, um, it's probably enough common knowledge I can say it, but I got to design a spaceship. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've seen the show lately. I haven't seen it lately. I got to design a spaceship, and the spaceship is incredible looking. I, I, like, not that I designed it, but the fact that it was ill built. Mm-hmm. You could draw up anything, but I got, I got to draw something literally from nothing. And the fact that every night, this gigantic object gets to fly over the audience. Is I still it has still hasn't sunk in. Yeah, it's it's like a dream come true. It's like George Lucas designed a lot of spaceships. I, I don't think he's ever got to see a real one fly over his head. Yeah, not in blue screen. Like really fly over his head. Yeah, life size, not a miniature. Yeah. So again, that's one of those. I just really lucky, and I think one day it'll hit me. Like wow, I did that. So there you go. That's huge. That's so cool. And it, what's interesting is I got to design it, but it looks nothing like a Star Wars ship. Really? Well, that also has to fit within that world and that character. I've seen the character to whom the yeah. spaceship belongs. And but, but, but what it was is I wanted Joe Johnson or George Lucas to see it, and no, I didn't copy him. Yeah. I think I, think that's, I, think I remember I purposely said that to myself. I want to design something that will blow them away. I want George Lucas to go, holy shit. Yeah. But I don't want to go, hey, that looks just like the Death Star, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because then, then it's too much flattery, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So, God, I would love for them to see that. <laughs> I'd love them to experience that. Cause, yeah, absolutely. Because they experience it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. They've seen a miniature on a blue screen. I don't think they've seen a, what looks like a real ship flying real, in their head. Yeah. So maybe I'm the luckiest man alive. That's cool. That's really cool. So that's basically that's what how Star Wars affects me. Okay. It's design, point of view, mm-hmm. and I think that's about it. What and about the music script? Yeah, and then what about Indiana Jones? It's more my wife's okay. favorite thing. Okay. I love I do love Indiana Jones. Yeah. I love just any kind of escaping kind of Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones are all similar mm-hmm. kind of just the guy escaping from I, I actually identify more with Woody Allen really yes okay that's interesting <laughs> because I love and Chevy Chase I love bumbling mm-hmm. people in front of women yeah I love people are like uh, dropping stuff and yeah. being creative and resourceful something I love about that the humanity of it the vulnerability yeah. of it yeah and so I've always loved John Cusack mm-hmm. Woody Allen that kind of character sure like, and Chevy Chase for that exact a huge part of my personality comes from Woody Allen. Really? Yeah. The old Woody Allen, like Sleeper. And yeah, yeah. Taking my own slapstick. I love really stupid, dry humors. That's so interesting. Gosh, I need to watch more Woody Allen. I've only seen a couple of his films. and 
I do appreciate, you know, his new, like Annie Hall and the romantic comedy, but sure. I love pure visual slapstick. So, you know, like Naked Gun, Police Squad. Yeah. Even going for that Kentucky Fried movie was a huge influence. I'm not, I'm not uh, familiar. by the Zucker Brothers, and it's, yeah. it's the people that did Airplane. Because, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. And before that was Police Squad, and mm-hmm. Police Squad was a little series on TV that became the Naked Gun. Okay. Um, a lot of the jokes in Police Squad are Naked Gun. And there's a new show on TBS called Angie Tribeca, mm-hmm. and that's completely in that vein of just pure visual puns, and it's, it's great. So there's obviously a market out there, so I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one that likes that stuff. Okay. Well, uh, it is it, I mean, okay, so you're designing and developing for the most famous magic show that's ever existed. But is it also cool to see people online sharing pictures of your wedding bands and being like, look how cool this is? Because, like, what you're doing resonates with people outside of magic and stuff. But, like, you know, I, I think it's super cool. I would nerd out if... I Actually, that's not even, that's not even I, fair I to say. A, I have a... Something about me loves customization. Mm-hmm. If someone walks in with a T-shirt that is like your like your T-shirt that it's not. You just go, don't go to Macy's. Oh, one day you'd love that. Yeah, Macy's I would love to go to Macy's to get this. <laughs> the fact that it's something that not everyone has mm-hmm. or one-offs or mm-hmm. you made it yourself. Something yeah. I like about customization. I love that too. And that's why I just I love making my own T-shirts. I do so, some silk screening, and that's why when it came opportunity to design a ring, mm-hmm. I'm like I'm not gonna buy. I I could buy something in the store, but man. What a great palette to design your own thing. Yeah. It's not that difficult. Mm-hmm. And not that expensive to design your own ring. It's not like I'm going to design my own car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, it was a great opportunity to design something and to pay tribute to what I love, which is everything in this ring, on my ring, is based on um, Joe Johnson's sketches from those sketchbooks we talked about. Yeah. Callback. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Listeners, you didn't see how joyful his face was when he looked at you. In deep into the microphone. I looked into the bag. <laughs> All that bag reminds me of is, you know, when you go to the toy store and there's that squirrel tail hanging out of it that's wiggling around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what it reminds you of. I'm like waiting for it to wiggle around. That's so funny. Like out of batteries. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, I guess... How long have we been going? 147. It feels wow. like nothing. Wow. I'm so excited. Okay. Is there a limit? No, of course not. Oh, not okay. No. No, no, no. You were talking in one of the podcasts about analytics. Like, have you seen, do people tend to watch through? Do they or listen to? Do they fall off? Do they? Yeah, I, I don't even care. Okay. <laughs> I don't even want to know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, like everyone said, if you made it this far. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations. Okay. Well, we're not even close. We barely talked about magic. So. <laughs> Let's just, we'll get back into it. I want to talk about Coins 1 and 2, and I want to talk about your rela- your magic relationship with Chris and Totally Out of Control, and then uh, and then we'll hear the stories about Illusions Restaurant, and then we'll wrap it up. Does that sound good? We'll be back in five. No. What are we, <laughs> and that'll be back. <laughs> yeah, no. And we're back. Or just like any magic teaching video. And now let's get into let's it. Let's get into it. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so... Cincinnati years, you were yes. getting into magic and then... I was getting into magic, and around... And then my first magic convention, I believe, was Magi Fest in Columbus, Ohio, which mm-hmm. I think with Joshua J. just got 
took over it, right? Sure, Josh. And, off. and it was a convention that's been around for over 80 years or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that's an, it was so great that I was able to save that. And that's where, it's like the next plateau of where I saw amazing magic. And that's where I first saw young David Williamson. And he was just kind of underground. Hardly anyone knew who he was. But he was already doing like the four, his famous four card trick and deck the pocket and torn restore transpo, striking vanish. He had, mm-hmm. he had, at the point at that point he had striking vanish in Encore Two with Michael Amars, mm-hmm. and I saw him do deck the pocket in the middle of the lobby in at the Holiday Inn Magic Fest, the old hotel, and I just said to myself, first I was blown away. I said, "That's what I, if I'm." going to do magic that's exactly what I want, what I want to be like it's funny that you mentioned Chad Long earlier because <laughs> Chad does all of David's material I think me and Chad are like we have the same hair too yeah I love that um, it's it's funny because whenever I if, if you were to see like do, me do magic for layman I, I'll, if I do three card tricks all three are David Williams' tricks mm-hmm. I would start with deck the pocket go to Tornish or Trample and then maybe do the four card trick if I want to kill at, at time yeah and it's and there's another thing that I want to change about me is I do it with his, his same jokes. Mm-hmm. My God, if I'm going to at least do ma- his magic, at least do jokes that fit me. Yeah. So I realized the other day I was performing. I, I, Larry wanted Larry Fong wanted to learn Torn and Sword Transpo, and he's he seen other magicians do it. He didn't like the way they did it. And I mm-hmm. said, Well, I do it exactly like Williams does it because it's great. And so I he filmed me doing it for some people after a little film shoot we did. And I, I was looking at it going, oh my God, I'm using the exact same jokes Williamson does. I, I'm much better than that. I should be able to at least make it fit me. Yeah. So that's my next goal. It's like, is to not necessarily learn new magic, but if I'm going to do David Williamson's magic, at least make it fit me. This is a recurring thing that I hear, and it's something that I can attest to as well. It's that, like, those tricks that you really gravitated to, like when you were getting serious about magic and really putting in time and effort, that's the stuff that you still do X number of years later. Yeah, it's, Williamson embodies exactly what I love, which is he's an amazing performer, he's extremely funny, uh-huh. but the technical ability, if you dive into the technical details, it's all there. Yeah. There's no slop in his magic. You know, he has. So many details, everything he does from the way he gets a break to the way his top change, it, everything about him is incredible. And it's all the serve entertainment. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not a demonstration of detail. It's a, de- it's, it's a performance. Yeah. It helps the performance. It's like being a technically proficient dancer, but you don't see the technical. You just see the grace. My favorite thing of his is on Dave 2, and it's the spoon-bending thing. Yes. That's the most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen. And it's what? So I prefer prefer the first uh, bend, and then... The bend, and then... And then the piece. That method is so gorgeous to me. And performing that takes, what, 15 seconds? I mean, it's... Oh, gosh. And and the real, if if you're getting new into... If you're new to Dave Williamson, and you're you're a young magician, and you've just started looking on YouTube, and... You're obviously going down the wrong track. <laughs> you need to watch Williamson teach the uh, when he, when Williamson teaches the vanishing sugar into the teacup with the thumb tip. It's so funny. Every moment in that 
is justified. It's, it's, the, it's the greatest lesson in magic because every reason for the economy of motion and uh -huh. routine is, is, is groundbreaking. Yeah. It's all right there. And it could easily be this convoluted routine with shows and displays and, and cover this and the Everything process. is so motivated, it's, yeah. It's motivated and simplified. It's a great um, introduction to Dave Williams. Hi, David. Are you listening? <laughs> I hope you are. I, I just ran into Dave Williamson about, well, this podcast is about <laughs> a couple hours ago yeah. in the lobby, and I almost just like, I couldn't talk to him. I'm like, he's like my hero. Yeah. I love this guy. Isn't that funny? And he's I think. He's the nicest person in the world. It's like the last, he's the nicest person in the world. I, he like walked up to me, and I almost like kind of cowered and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of did. Yeah. It's like, I was just scared. Yeah. I'm scared, but just embarrassed. Cause, cause Why? Why were you embarrassed? Yeah. I was yeah. in the middle of doing the striking banners when we walked over. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh, what, what the? It's like, I feel like I was just doing someone else's magic and yeah. that guy walked over. Yeah. Anyway, continuing. What were we talking about? Well, what? So why? Oh, uh, my first convention. Yeah. Well, hold on. I'm not done. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, we're not in a hurry. I, but I, you know, like, there's he obviously he wouldn't mind if you had, if you know he seen you doing this. Why? Well, I, well, why is it? I, like, know, I mean, I, it's, it's just embarrassing because you know it's like he's the creator and I'm sitting there fooling with it. Yeah, but you're like a phenomenal coin magician. Of course, you I do, do this. Things well. well. Okay. Well, I, I um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to challenge you on that, but um, but that first magic convention was amazing. That's where I first met Gary Plant. I think uh, before this, I even met Chris. So I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that Magic Fest was just an amazing convention. It's a great look in the Midwest. It's a great location. People come from Chicago and East Coast, and from the South, it's a perfect hub. Yeah. Of magicians, and you know, that's where I met Gary Plants and Tom Fry would come up, and um, I'd hang out with my friend Brett and Chris Corn from St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was like the whirlwind of just seeing amazing magic. And back then, it was, there was all that, you know, people would show you something and then they would not show it to you anymore. Yeah. And, and it was kind of great because it made you want to learn stuff and create your own stuff because you'd be fooled by it and not immediately know how it works. Yeah. And that was kind of cool. It's kind of gone away a little bit. Sure, sure. But because, you know, I was listening to. Is Dave's podcast mm -hmm. about sharing? Yes. And not being so secretive? Mm -hmm. I agree with him, but there's something neat about hearing about an effect, maybe catching it really quick, and then it wasn't two years later we saw it again. Because you had this mystery in your head about, wow, I saw this effect. And in the meantime, you're working on other magic to be try to be as good and hopefully have something you could do for someone that fools them in the same way. Yeah. And then not do it for two years. Yeah. And and, and like Chris Corn was that was good at that. He would show me something. He would show something to someone else and know I was watching. Oh. You know, it fooled me. And then he put it away and I asked, well, what was that thing you did? Well, I'll show you later. Uh. Five years later. Oh, you know, it's nothing. And two more years later, uh, you know, I'll show you when I when I see you next time. And it just it just it was kind of great because it yeah. kept it fueled like a friendship of like for everything. I don't know. It was like a fun camaraderie. Sure, sure. Um, 
And in, in, in the middle of that, and Rush, this is a whole nother half hour here. But, let's get into uh, it. Is, uh, and let's get into it. And let's get into it. <laughs> Illusioned Restaurant opened up in uh-huh. Carmel, Indiana, which is yes. a nice suburb of Indianapolis. And it was uh, a restaurant that had really, really good food and a bar and lounge for performers that could do like a stand-up kind of parlor magic. Uh-huh. And we had walk-around magic around the tables. As a magic theme restaurant, so people expected magic. Sure. Like, yeah. You weren't you weren't a professional interrupter. Exactly. Um, and that opened, I think, in '88. And I had gone to a magic convention in Indianapolis. So you were 22 at this time. Probably. Or okay. Less, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. If you're doing the math, I don't. <laughs> I had placed second in a magic contest, and that's another whole discussion because I won. I, I placed. I think I won two magic contests to conventions that I snuck into. <laughs> so you snuck into two conventions and, and won them? first. Wow, okay. okay. But one of them was... The what material app. were you doing? Williamson? <laughs> no, because I hadn't quite it? met him yet. Okay, what was it? To, I don't know. I have, God, I have no idea what I did. Well, what was the flavor of it? I mean, you beat well, these... Well, magic crap. I don't know. Yeah, okay. All right. Anyway, so... I don't know what I did. Um, it wasn't that like, great. Somehow, one. You know what? It's just other performers weren't as good. Let me just put that. that okay, be. sure. All right. Um, well, the second place, the first and second place at this magic contest in Indianapolis was a week to perform at Illusion Restaurant. So I want to place second, and then some dates came up. And, and right now, I was in the middle of industrial design school. Mm-hmm. So I started dri- taking the weekends and driving to Indianapolis. and. Uh, I performed for a week there, and that's when I where I met Chris Cater. Well, I think I met him at a convention. I met him at the, at the St. Louis Jubilee maybe a year before. Okay, sure. Um, but that's where Chris was working. Um, a good friend of mine named Dan Dagger, which is another whole podcast. Um, <laughs> Mike Close was working there, and a handful of other magicians, uh, Pat Smith and um, Steve Hart, probably names that people know. And Terry Becky, and that's where I met Chris, and also learned. That's where I really became good friends with Chris because we discovered not only with magic, but we also had interest in graphic arts and design. And Chris, at the time, was a very good graphic designer, and had worked for an agency at one point. And uh, you know, he knew how to. He was big into Mac computers, starting from the very first Mac. He had every Mac, every operating system, every beta. So that's why he's so fluent in Macintosh computers. Uh-huh. He's, he's been with it since day one. Wow. He's had every computer probably, and he's had every problem, and he's had to learn to problem solve. Back in the time when it was hard to get technical support, there was no internet. Yeah. He was able to solve computer problems on like an old Mac Plus or something. And so that's why he's, that's one of his strengths of problem solving, applied to computers that we were talking about earlier. Callback. Um, <laughs> so, a long story short is, eventually, with Illusions being an hour and a half drive away, uh-huh. I would start taking my weekends, driving to Indianapolis, I'd crash on Chris's couch, and I'd go to Illusions, and I would hang out. And I'd get to watch magicians perform behind the bar, people performing on the, in the lounge, which is like a comedy, very small comedy club style performing, people doing table magic, mm-hmm. and eventually they'd be like, hey, you want to do some tables? Put on a jacket. And I started, started working there. And next thing you know, I was going back and forth. 
I would come for the weekend, then, oh, we're, oh, we could use your help on Monday and Tuesday. And I started skipping school. Okay. So it's end up sleeping regularly on Chris's couch. At the same time, we were starting to write the Magic Man Examiner mm -hmm. and doing projects and writing up magic. Um, How did that come about? I think just I think Chris just wanted to write a fun, cool magazine and make it fun. Okay. So we just started writing with tricks, and he he would call his friends and say, "Hey, John Carney or whatever. I forgot who was in the first one. You know, give me a trick, or Matt King, give me a trick." And uh, we'd illustrate it together. We laid mm -hmm. out, and that's where we started learning to write funny shit together. Yeah. You know, if I don't ever read Out of Control. Oh, uh, of course, I love yeah. that book. So usually. Because I type better, I'm used to the one that types. Okay. And I would just start typing. So you take the four ice and you put it in here, and then I would slip a joke in. What do you think of that, Chris? Like, oh my God, I can't say that. Okay, put it in. <laughs> and we'd keep typing, and that's how mm -hmm. we just write. And then we'd illustrate, write and illustrate till, we, till, and, till four in the morning. And then next thing you know, I was eventually. That was also a really good impression of Chris. What I, what I do? Oh God, he gets it. Put it in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's re it really is. It's so good. That's really funny. We both talk fast. When I used to answer the phone at Illusions or I don't know where or at his house, people would think I was him. Uh -huh. We both talk very fast. Um, but so I eventually became full-time at Illusions and I started bartending there. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of bar magic and I would do tables on weekends. So I was like full-time magician for, for a few, couple of years. Sure. And Illusions was just a great, I don't know if there's any other place like it, because it's not quite the Magic Castle. It's in a, it was kind of tough. Uh, we had, for a while we had weekly magicians come in, you know, Eugene Berger would come there for a week, or Joe Given, or someone would come in for a week, and they'd be the, sure. guest, the special performer. But it was tough for them. It wasn't like a castle audience where you could almost do anything. The castle yeah. audience were great. They're, for some reason... They're so responsive. They know what they expect. Yeah. You know. But at Illusions, they're a little more like, this is a comedy club that's going on. And it was hard to win people over. Yeah. And really good seasoned magicians would bomb there. That's awesome. Yeah, it was tough. And, it, and that's where Chris like really learned to just, you know, Saturday nights, Chris would be doing a 40-minute lounge show, and people would be in the doorways looking in, like just trying to, get a piece of it because it's just the electricity in that room is incredible wow that's that's a good thing about hard audiences is that once they're on your side yeah, yeah I mean they're undeniable and it just it was just two or three years of I just wish I could go back for ten minutes and go wow this is such an amazing place and to be able to and you know there's some magicians that would go and table table do the same you know sort of basic stuff or the same things but people like Chris and I would go to tables to, as a, every table is an opportunity to experiment with, do three things you know, and then one thing that you're trying. Mm -hmm. And you can't replace doing six hours of table magic every night and doing a lounge and then walk, work behind a bar. And it was, it was an incredible time and just starting to kind of, starting to remember it a little bit today. So, you know, because we're at a magic convention here at Magic Live and I just ran into Pat Smith and it's just reminding me of just great times at Illusion restaurants, and there's other magic restaurants, but it doesn't doesn't have the same vibe. It might be because of its location. It was in a neighborhood of a, like an upscale neighborhood. Okay. So it's a little more of a felt a little more. It sounds know. like it might feel like a little more taboo to try 
because because these are hard. This is like wealthy people are notoriously difficult yeah. because they feel superior. Yes, Some, something about it. Because even we've had even like good stand-up comedians that were like comedy magicians go there. Yeah, and they kind of bombed. Yeah, because it's not a comedy club audience, uh -huh. either, which can be it's a different tough. Sure. So it's a very interesting dynamic at Illusions that I haven't seen anywhere else. And whenever you, if you ever interview Chris Kenner, he'll have better insight because he worked on that stage uh -huh. a lot more than I did. Okay. I just started, before I left for Copperfield, I just started doing stand-up. I started working on my stand-up stuff. So. Do you still do stand-up? No. Would you want to? You know, I feel like, um, and this is a whole other subject too, is at one point, I wanted to be great at everything. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be great at billiards. I had a pool table at my house. I wanted to be an amazing tennis player. I wanted to be an amazing golfer. I had every book, every you know, instructions, lessons, you name it. Yeah. Same with billiards, same with tennis, uh, photography. And at my age, I'm starting to learn, and the whole sponge thing we talked about being saturated. Yeah, yeah. I have sold the pool table. I'm trying to, I play golf every now and then, but I don't take it seriously. Yeah. I'm really focusing on channeling my efforts to on Kiaris, cinematography, and David. Yeah. And if they can be intertwined, even better. Sure. So, um, what were we getting at? Oh, stand-up. Yeah. At one point, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I wanted to learn. I'm not naturally funny. I'm very funny in a group, just sitting around. Sure throwing jokes around, uh -huh. but in front of 100 people, I, I, I can't tell a joke. Okay. Naturally, you know, some people are very natural at that. And uh, I haven't figured it out. And I don't need to. I, I, I'd love to just go, I'd rather be entertained by someone funny than try to be funny myself. Okay. And I'd rather focus, if I was 20, sure, hey, I'll, I'll go eat this. shit I'll in front of 100 exactly. people. <laughs> exactly, but at this, at my age now, I'm like getting to the point where my God, if I'm going to be a cinematographer, I'm going to, I can't be in a wheelchair trying to light a new, new movie or something. You yeah, know? yeah. I've got to get moving. So I kind of eliminated distractions. And I yeah. focus, my, all day I focus on David. And then when I get home, I either try to re-energize by just cooking or relaxing uh -huh. or work on something related to cinematography or photography or directing. So where are we at? What was the question? <laughs> Dead time. Dead space. Oh my god. Oh, I'm so uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable silence. Uncomfortable silence. Um, no, I think that I think that covers it. Um, do you feel good? Yes. You do? Do you want to see what the, the what the running time is? 208. Wow. I'm almost at Aussie level. Almost. Seven more minutes. Well the best part about that podcast is it ended like at 150. Yeah. And then and then it they was were joking just joking about no one's listening now on anyway, so let's just keep you know keep yeah. see how long they stay and, and that was like the best part. I, I know. It's so great. And then a random person walks in and they're showing magic and And then Lovett calls Aussie and <laughs> that's on the phone for ten seconds. Right. Um what we, what's on the list? What but we covered everything. I mean it it, came, it it actually came up genuinely one way or the other. Really? Yeah. All of it. Um You were very good. Oh, is there a grading system? A plus. <laughs> it's called analytics. Analytics. Looks like after seven and a half minutes of that. <laughs> <laughs>
but it picked back up an hour and 58 minutes into it. <laughs> um, Is there anything you, you want to say? Or coin one, coin two, I think. Yeah, oh, that's right. I did. Well, yeah, you, you talked about um, totally out of control, and so I forgot about coin one and coin two. Yeah, uh, but I do want to know about that. So, yeah, I'm glad you remembered it. Yeah, when uh, we did coin, uh, we'll jump back a little bit, when we did totally out of control, um, at the time, both Chris and I could illustrate books, mm -hmm. but I wanted to have a little fun with it. So I always loved the, I think his name is Dwight Dunaway, did illustrations in the Paul Harris books. And there, were, there was like a hand, and at the end of it was tied off like a balloon in one drawing. Mm -hmm. And that's why if you look at it totally out of control, you'll see like little characters between fingers or a head in a turtleneck or something. Uh -huh. That's all bits inspired by Dwight Dunaway, Paul Harris, illustration Paul Harris. Okay. And the writing is just Chris and I. Chris and I's humor just instantly just connected when we write. We'll write, we finish each other's sentences all the time and just, it, it's crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, speaking of influences, Chris, I, I'll talk about Dave Williamson, but I also forget that Chris is probably probably as big of an influence. I mean, his, you know, his coin magic is unbelievable and mm -hmm. supernatural. Yeah, his Chris's coin magic, whether it's three flyer, any anything he does in, out of control, you ever you should have asked him to do anything out of control because you know you never see him classic palm. He never everything is fluid and natural, mm -hmm. and you don't see that in a lot of magicians. Yeah. even really great technical coin magicians may look mechanical. Now, yeah, absolutely. Natural and doesn't look like a retention bench or doesn't look like a hammer bench. Mm -hmm. Everything looks like it's just magic at his fingertips, and that's a huge influence for me. And yeah, and he's also you know my best friend, and you know everything I do, it's like oh, what does Chris think about that? And he's really good at keeping me in check when I'm like going too far off on some stupid. You know, whatever it is, even in life. Mm -hmm. um, so he's like my big brother. So, and you know, he's he he is the you have to you have to podcast him because he's the I think ultimate example of a problem solver mm -hmm. in every way, creative, mechanic, anything. So that's yeah, that's what he does. So. Yeah. Um, coin one, and I never told anyone this before, but. And this is the age where I was. I want to start filming stuff and doing, learning some cinematography. Um, video was starting to come out. I think like Illusionist and stuff like that. And this video came out. God, what was it called? Silver Dream by. I'm not familiar. <coughs> Justin. God, I can't remember his name. It was a three coin vanish. Mm -hmm. Every appearance, and in it actually had one of my moves. Mm -hmm. Uncredited, uncredited at the time. And when I saw that. I was like, oh my God, if he can, Justin Miller, he came up with a, a nice routine called Silver Dream. And I thought, God, because at, at that point I thought, wow, it's a whole production to come up with a video and cameras and editing suites and lighting and studios. When I saw that, I just kind of dawned on me, I can make my own. Yeah. So I decided to just film the trick I could do the most, that I, that I did the most and could do the easiest. Well, not easiest, but something that was natural to me. And sure. That was coin one. Okay which is based on um, John Kennedy's In the Hands translocation, but it's backwards. Mm -hmm. So instead of being dirty at the end of each appearance, you're clean. Mm -hmm. You start dirty. And I also 
didn't want to do anything that I don't like about most magic videos at the time, which is too much talking. And we take the coin, and you put it here, and you want to use your third finger. To, so I decided to do non-talking, all visuals. Yeah. Like uh, an airline safety video where an arrow, you open the card and the arrow points to the buckle, and it click, and you lift here, and it's all arrows. And sure, all, sure. Maybe a few words. So, and I wanted the cinematography good. Cinematography to be good. See, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> and I wanted the camera and lighting and editing and the music to be good. So I concentrated on the look and the design, the lighting and how it looked, and and the one thing about teaching also is you gotta see it from the performer's point of view. If you just do something, I only show you the slow motion and you expose it from the front. I can't see that. I can't. My head can't go to that view. So you sure. have to show. And if you look at coin one, also, it's not just over the shoulder. It feels like the camera is where my head should be. Point of view. And that, and that was hard to do because that you had to cheat. You had to contort your body so that your hands were in a position that looked like the camera was your uh, the eyes of the performer. Mm -hmm. And that was hard to do, and, not, and no one really does that. They, they do an over the shoulder, so you're sure. off to the side, and it's not the same as being between the hands. Yeah. So imagine having to do this, <laughs> right? And with a hard, I'm contorting. He's right contorting now. in I'm the chair. And yeah. And it was very difficult, and I actually took a dry erase marker, and on the monitor, do an outline of where my hand should be on the monitor. So that, because they'll drift. You stay in there, yeah. Because yep. you'll, you'll start to get comfortable and you'll drift. Next thing you know, your hands are now, in the view of this camera, the hands are now coming from the corner. Yeah. When they need to be here. So it looks like the camera's from between the hands, and that makes a huge difference. Sure. So, and I also, since it's the advent of DVDs, you could rewind. So you don't have to over-teach something. Mm -hmm. If you want to learn something, just rewind it. Absolutely. And I wanted the slow motion. And I wanted to teach it in steps. Like, if you teach someone a golf swing, you don't teach them. You teach them, okay, the basic grip, stance, and, and a takeaway, and a swing, and a follow-through. You don't get into the little V here, and you want to have 80% of weight. You don't. If you go into too much detail at the beginning, you get overwhelmed yep. and you can't take the information. So I made little separate videos for the details of the handling, but the overall handling was taught to get a feel for it. Then you can watch the little videos to get, okay, in-depth of this move and this move. And it seemed to work really well and and uh, it seemed to cap that style seemed to catch on of, of good and bad or non-talking teaching. Sure. Because a lot of people, all of a sudden videos are popping up in Penguin Magic and stuff that, where there was no talking and there was loud music and the text was in the wrong spot and you couldn't see what was going on mm -hmm. and the music was horrible and it was just being done badly. Sure. So, and I, I remember David noticing that. He, he told me one day, he's like, I've been watching these videos lately and it seems like all the videos, all the teaching videos that, I'm, that people are handing me are all non-talking with text and graphics on top. So I don't know if I, that was influenced from coin one or not, but, and I don't know, but I just thought that was an efficient way to teach without rambling. Sure. It was interesting because I got emails from people that were like, I'm, um, I'm, I'm deaf. Mm -hmm. So, so it was, it was, they were able to learn my routine Exactly the same way as someone else would. Right. Yeah. Without having to hear instructions. So that was nice. And that was coin one. Mm -hmm. And I'm really big into packaging and presentation. When you when you buy like an Apple computer, the, the way the 
you know, the you know experience they, of the when you lift the yeah. box and the bottom slowly falls out, the air suction, you know that's calculated. You know, you know that when you first thing you open the, the, the color of that graphic or the piece of tape you use to undo the piece of there's not a twist tie around the power cable. It's this piece of plastic that they had to engineer and pay money to manufacture to peel open to unravel your power cord. Mm -hmm. Every detail is Apple computers probably the only company where people save the box. Yeah. You know, they don't throw I have, it away. I have several Apple boxes right, in my house right now. Just their works of art. Yeah. But even if you never ever open it again. Even the iPhone box, all yes, of it. Yeah. There's some the way that they feel they're rigid and thick. Mm -hmm. And I, I love Great the importance of packaging. And I think I got that. I remember when Chris Kenner was lecturing in Japan, he came back with all these gifts and he showed me all the packaging was this label label bent over the top and it was folded and it was in another sleeve. So that's why the packaging coin was was my attempt to do like a Japanese style packaging. Mm -hmm. And we did it all ourselves. You know, my poor wife Amy was slaving on me, <laughs> packaging all this stuff by hand and and hand inserting these things into the DVD and taking numbered stickers and folding and they were into an anti-static bag and each had a label on it said, you know, caution contents are magically sensitive mm -hmm. instead of static sensitive. I mean, overkill. I mean, I would never do that again. <laughs> it was a great exercise in, in doing what I love in products, mm -hmm. which is the packaging and presentation. Sure. You know, every detail. So um, that's coin one. And coin two just was the same thing. Coin two, coin two was, I, I went way overboard in coin two because... Oh, you're cringing yeah, so hard yes, right I now. Yes, like, my face is wrinkling like a prune. So, oh, gosh. Oh, if my eyes can't close anymore. Um, <laughs> the reason I'm cringing is because, you know, I love when you buy a DVD set for, like, a movie and it has the disc of special features. It's got the blooper reel. It's mm -hmm. got commentary. I love all that stuff because I like learning from that. Mm -hmm. So I try to do as much of that in Coin2. So in Coin2, there's, like, a... <coughs> blooper reel on my dry hands and there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a behind the scenes thing and I just, it's, it's way too much because it's, I don't know, I just thought it, I, I went too far on that. The pa packaging is a custom printed and hand folded box and inserted postcards and a elastic band that went over that Amy hand sewed every single one of them. And I think like the, the unit cost for that package was like $17 for a DVD at cost 30 or something so yeah there's like no profit sure <laughs> it's ridiculous but that's why i'm not doing another one of those but uh it's just fun. but they were exercises they were they fun were, they, they were, were design exercises yeah and yeah and it was just a lot of work it's like coin one i shot in like three nights mm. i shot my thing done then i shot like an explanation another night and then chris came over he shot his thing in an hour and left and then two weeks I had a DVD or something. And then two sure. while I did the graphics and Amy did the, I, I always love when video turns into photos. Mm -hmm. Like the end of, was it, West, was it well, Western that did that? And, oh my God. Or like, you know, the AHA well, music video. Sure. Or it's kind of like that 007 uh, opening, yes. the gun barrel crawl. Yeah, so it's like, uh, that's why I loved in Coin One when the, hands finish to vanish and then the freeze and they turn to an illustration the illustration mm -hmm. separates into sections yeah i just love that so amy spent hours drawing my hands and making that artwork i love that when you toss the coins up and, and the they coin freeze freeze yeah. yeah that was fun and um 
What am I getting at? Design exercise. Just. It was a design exercise. Coin one took three days and. Yes, and coin two took me like a year and a half because I was so into like making these backgrounds. What it is, is if I had to do it now, I bet you I could have done the same thing in a week. Mm -hmm. I spent way too much time doing something. I think the, the end result of coin two was not worth the effort I put into it. For that, not for a year and a half on a video, it should have been a masterpiece. You know what I mean? And it was, you know, it was what it was. But and we mentioned Chad Long, who's, oh, his podcast coming next, next week. week yes. Yeah. By the time this airs, it will have been like three or four weeks ago. Mind blown. Um, <laughs> time travel. <laughs> yes. It's funny, uh, Chad is an early influence in a way because um, Chris had met him in Florida and said, You got to meet this guy. And mm -hmm. this is back in time I was living in Indianapolis. Chad was in Florida. His hair was already gray. <laughs> yes. And so we had no, there's no internet mm -hmm. back then. So we eventually connected on the phone. And this is the time when phone call wasn't free. If you want to call Florida, you're paying 25 cents a minute or whatever. Yeah. And I, you know, I had no money because I'm working at a legit bartending and working for tips and whatnot. But we would correspond and talk for hours on the phone and describe coin effects to each other, practice them. And I eventually would put them on videotape and I'd send them to Chad over yeah. and over again. And that's where he learned coin too. Wow. Which, you know, He's been doing it. I think he's opened his lectures with a you know, warm up and he does the coin thing, but he doesn't teach it. And that was 24 years ago. Okay. Last night I saw him do it for the first time live. Oh my God. He did it for me at Main Jonathan's party. And I got to see coin two live. And it's so funny that 24 years ago I had sent him a tape to show him that trick. And that's the first time I got to see him do it. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? And, and, and it's in the perfect hands because we both have the same timing. We both have this kind of quick rush, not rushed, it's quick and... It's fast-paced, energetic. It's fast-paced yeah. and the beats are going and then quick little pauses and whatnot. But it fits, we fit each other's timing very well. And then, and then it's funny, I, you know, I realized, I kept saying, sending VHS tapes to him. And then it was, we were talking last night and I realized Hey, you haven't sent me a single videotape. <laughs> Where's my videotapes? You're teaching me magic. Oh, that's so funny. And that's a guy that we've spent 100 hours on the phone creatively, but I don't think we've ever done it in person. We've never sat together at a convention and worked on magic. We all run to each other. He loves time. to talk on the phone. Does he? Yeah. That's and funny. that's how I know him. Yeah. His hours on the phone, pacing yeah. in my back, you know, landline, pacing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Drawing the cord all exactly over the house. Exactly, and, and untwisting it as you walk. Yeah. And that's Chad Long. So, yeah, influences. Another big influence magically, if we continue on magic talk, is Tim Conover. He is, and it's so sad that he's passed away, mm -hmm. but I'm so lucky that I've seen him perform. Um, I was in Aspen at one point during my illusions career, uh, switching with my friend Jeff Edmonds, who used, usually worked in Aspen doing performing in bars there in the s snow season and in the summer season it's dead. Yeah. But he said, here, here's an opportunity to switch and enjoy Aspen. So we switched. So he took my position at illusions in Indianapolis. I went to Aspen and lived in his trailer for a summer. Mm -hmm. And that was hard because it's really slow. You walk into a normally what would be a crowded bar of people that just skiing all day, rich people, celebrities, mm -hmm. maybe two families having lunch. You know? <laughs> and I'm horrible at walking up to people. Mm -hmm. Illusions, they expect you, they're ready for you to walk up and do magic. Sure. 
at this place, you had to walk and go, hi, I'm the local magician, and oh, man, that is the worst thing in the world. When you have to, I hate selling <laughs> myself. I want people to somehow know who I am and want me. But for me to walk up and have, look, here's what I can do. Yeah. Terrible at that. Terrible. So I basically made, I would, if, there might be 100 people there that night. I probably walked up to two people and did magic. Maybe, <laughs> made, maybe made 20 bucks, and that yeah. was it. So I was starving. But the point was, while I was there, um, I had met and made friends with Eric Mead, who's amazing. He, that's an, another amazing person that does coin two. He probably does it the best. I think he did it on, he might have done it on Masters of Magic or something. He did coin two, and it really fits him. He took my routine, understood it, and made it fit his personality, and it's probably, it's so much better than I do it. Mine's like a demonstration of skill. When he does it, it's, it's, it's Eric. It's Eric and magic. It's 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 pure. Um, but I digress again. Um, Eric invited me up to the Jerome, which is a beautiful five-star hotel in Aspen. And Bill Hers had a show for a, for like 750 Fortune 500 wow. executives. Okay. On the bill was Mike Caveney, and closing was Tim Conover. And I get to watch uh, Mike Caveney. Was just un, was just so professional. And He's just, incredible. Just incredible. Never see that. Magic. Such a phenomenal performer. Yes. Just to see that the the coat and the and the spoons into the chicken in in, in front of a real audience. You, you have to see it for real people. Mm -hmm. They're paying audience, and then to see Conover do an hour, just shaking and sweating like he needed a cigarette, <laughs> and doing mentalism. The, to me, that's it. I've never seen a mentalist that affected me the way Tim Conover did. And, and, and his methods are just diabolical. And I know Eric Mead is writing a, a book on Tim Conover. And I cannot wait to, I don't even want to read it. I just want to hold it. Yeah. I know it's just so rich with information. Mm. And I got to do coin two for Conover. It's at the time when I was doing magic 24 hours a day. So I would nail it. Yeah. And I did coin one, coin two for Tim, and Tim was just so nice and gracious. And then I just remember Tim doing a coin vanish for some to someone else. Yeah, and then it was me, Mike Caveney, and uh, uh, Bill Hers, and Eric Mead. And just the kind of energy he focused on a single coin vanish made me think twice. You know, we, we do, when I do coin two, or when Jim does like a coin flurry, mm -hmm. it's here, it's there, it's back. It's, you're, it's almost like you're demeaning every appearance. Every appearance or reappearance of a coin could be a life-changing event. Its own, yeah. But sometimes we treat it like it's there and it's back and oh, it's under a card. It's like it's trivial. Yeah. When he makes a coin, when Conover was showing how to make a coin vanish, it was the energy of putting a coin in the hand, closing it, concentrating on it, and just opening it with this like, oh my god, it's like like it's almost like a, a slow motion of like a flower opening, mm -hmm. blooming. To open your hand and have a coin vanish with the kind of energy that Conover had in his hand and was demonstrating that stuck with me. And it makes me think, because I, I, I tend, to, tend to be a very fast and quick performer. Mm -hmm. So I always kind of think twice. Should I have waited longer? Should I have let the moment sink in longer? So I, I'm very fortunate. So Conover is a huge influence to me, even though I've only seen him do mentalism and one coin vanish. I, one of the, my magic lives, I saw him do his little uh, demo of a, of a corporate trade show. Okay. The, the bending coins. So I got to perform a little bit, but it was 
not the same as a one on one experience. So, and the mentalism is just incredible. Yeah. So, magic influences. There you go. I should list them off. Carl Over, Chris Kenner, watching Tommy Wonder perform at Magic Fest. Unbelievable. Wow. Um, Chris Kenner. Oh, Troy Hoosier was one of my influences in coin magic. Uh -huh. Super buttery, smooth, beautiful. And, uh, and of course, David Williamson. So, yeah. That's, in a nutshell, you could just that could be the whole pod, podcast right there. Here's my influences, <laughs> five names. <laughs> podcast over in 60, uh, 16 seconds. 16 seconds. Well, thank you so much, Homer. That's it? Yeah. We just started. I know. <laughs> this is fun. Oh, my God. Because I don't get to talk about magic that much. Yeah. I, like, I, I can tell that you're really excited about being here yeah, at the because, convention. Because for many years, I didn't go to conventions. I was so focused on David. Yeah. We were traveling all the time, and that's... And at the time, it was like, yeah, who wants to go to Magic Convention? We're doing magic. We're, we're living magic. Yeah. And then there was a first, that first Magic Convention at the San Remo, like in 2001, where we met Danny Garcia. And, oh, my current influence is Danny Garcia. is this rocks my world. So yeah, everything he does. He's a rock star. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's the nicest person in the world. <sighs> I just want to rub his head. Oh, it's so, it, so I, it's amazing how consistently smooth it is. I don't know how he does it. He's got to wax it every morning. Uh, yeah, it's a trade secret. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like, for some reason, I'm appreciating magic more. I don't mm -hmm. know why. Maybe it's just, maybe the fact that you asked me to do a podcast make, made me think, hmm, and I really appreciate, like, I started thinking about illusions. Yeah. And Dan Dagger and, and Chris and my experience in, in Indianapolis. You can't take, I, I'm so glad I had that. Yeah. I can't believe it's gone. And now I'm almost thinking like, God, when I was hanging out with Larry Fong in, in California and we were in LA and we were talking about Williamson's top change for 17 hours. And then I started, and then I started doing it and I said, hey, that looks pretty good. And uh, uh, he was taping me. We're going back and forth. Uh -huh. And then we're, we're jokingly going, hey, I should work on a castle act. And I'm like. Why not? That would be kind of fun, I think, you know, to work. To take, I had some, I, you know, I had a set that I did in illusions for magicians. So mm -hmm. magician came, if I knew a magician was at a table, I would, almost everything I did was totally original. Yeah. I had a whole pencil routine. Mm -hmm. I had a whole gum routine with, with chewing gum. And I had a whole routine with uh, a Carmex uh, lip balm box. Lip balm, okay. And, uh, and a few other things. So, and but actually clean them up and make them kind of, uh, commercial, not commercial, but get rid of the, you know, you, when you're doing tables and stuff in bar magic, you can get you can get away with pocket ditches and yeah, that would be a little more tight. Sure. You know, so you're not just. It's more practical. Yeah, it's not just. Yeah. Well, well, think of to, to be more to be more uh, streamlined. Instead of knowing I can steal something out of pocket and switch it out, yeah, steal it from a clip. Yeah, yeah, okay. Have it be more smart about it. Sure. So, how do I cleanly get into something? Exactly. Yeah. Because it's about the when details. You're when you're doing tables, yeah. you can get away with just making a joke and reaching in your pockets and stealing coins and yeah. ditching stuff. But now you're, yeah, it's it's it goes back to, you know, um, the details in the show and focusing on the magic. And if you don't do something right, if something in the frame is off, it's going to detract from the performance. It's going to detract from the magic. Well said. Well, that's what you said. You, you're the one that said it. 
I just repeated it back to what you. What did I say? I can't say that. Uh, <laughs> I won't be able to do it again. 15 seconds back, which is the best button ever in the podcast. It is best. 15 seconds go back. Oh. I love the new. I love the new. Uh, the new Apple TV, and the Siri, in the mm-hmm. remote. Yeah. Because if you miss something, and if like I I'm, I have trouble hearing, and so if I'm watching something, and I miss it, I can say into Siri, "What did they say?" Really. And she'll go back 15 seconds. And the captions will come up for that 15 seconds. And then they'll go off and you can continue on. Interesting. Like that kind of attention to detail and design is just... That's great. Yeah. Um, anything else? Eddie? Well, so now <laughs> now that you like are talking about... I have a kind of new energy because... Yeah, convention, exactly. It's not that I'm a geeking out on Magic Convention because I, I, I love them. It's just I'm seeing it a different way. Yes. Yeah. I saw Richard Kaufman today... And normally I'm like, oh, Richard Company, yeah, whatever. I'm like, oh my God, that's my first, one of my first magic books was Derek Dillon's cool. Complete yeah. Works. Oh, yeah. And Coin Magic. And then we started talking about the past. Uh-huh. And I said, wait a minute. I learned my past from Derek Dingle's book. And I, people say it's pretty good. Can I show it to you later on this week? And can I get your critique? Yeah. Because he personally knew Dingle. Yeah. And was raving about him. I'm like, wow, I didn't even knew he knew him. I thought he maybe wrote his book. But yeah. the fact that he knew him personally... I'm at this convention with different eyes right now. I'm like seeing people for people and yeah. not for like, he can do this trick and that's a good dealer. I'm like, I, I don't know, I'm changing somehow slowly and I'm seeing Richard Kaufman as like a person that knew someone amazing that we could share something and I could maybe learn something from Richard, yeah. for example. Um, and seeing my old friends from Illusions and, and we talked about Tom Frank mm-hmm. and the fact that he's performing here that's awesome because up till years ago, I think no one knew who he was. Yeah, and he was one of my best friends. Part of my history growing up is Tom Frank and Cincinnati, and it's so great to see him doing well. And at this excited, kind of, magic's kind of getting excited again. And I did want to bring something up. We're so lucky to be in magic because we get to ex- share and experience wonder. Mm-hmm. And something bothered me the other day. Like a year ago, I was looking at, there, or a few months ago, there was a Cardistry Con contest. Okay. And someone had, like, the winners for the three Cardistry videos are, or the, the finalists are this, this, and this. Yeah. And someone says, well, that guy's not original, and, and this, screw you, and you're an asshole. Yeah. And I'm going, wait a minute. This is, you guys have a whole new, you're, you're birthing and creating a new entity of cardistry that is in Wired magazine and it's Vanity young Fair people, and Vanity it's, Fair. Yeah. And you're bickering about some stupid comment and it's You're letting all the magic history shit on this new thing. And you're bringing into this pure beautiful thing that's blossoming and you're bringing it down to your shitty YouTube comment on a Donald Trump video or something, or a Kardashian video. Yeah, yeah. And I almost wanted, I almost was ready to type up a paragraph. Yeah. Like, kids, you guys don't, don't ruin this. Yeah. I mean, that, to see Cardistry Con and what these kids are doing and the verts and, and, and seeing magic in a new light. Mm-hmm. Where a wired and like Vanity Fair, like you said, can do a story on kids that have social skills and are hip and young and 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 
helping each other and this great pool of creativity. And then with comments like that, you're an asshole, you shithead, you're, you're a dick. And yeah, yeah. Oh my God, if, if your average person that's getting into car trade sees that and go, oh yeah, see. These people are not. These, these people are just, then they're like, oh, it's not special anymore. Yeah. And I just hate to hear that. And and there was a guy on one, uh, who I respect, mm -hmm. that was on one of the podcasts, was was making fun of David. And I'm, I'm sorry, but we are working so hard to move magic forward as an art form. Sure. And I understand if you don't you don't like a Woody Allen movie, it's fine, but I don't think you should trash it. it sure. Doesn't fit, I don't like, that's not my kind of thing, but to, to trash it and say, oh, I'm gonna puke next time I hear a story like that or whatever. Yeah. I, I just, it makes me feel like, oh my God, let's protect, let's keep the art. We're all here, everyone on these podcasts is trying to push the art forward. Sure. Let's not, let's, let's be nice to each other. Sure. It's, it's not, it's, it's, and if I could leave anything in a podcast, it's like, we're very lucky. If I could leave anything uh, to say at the end of this podcast is, uh, and it's probably because I'm maturing, getting older, I'm just really trying to, we should really be lucky that we're doing what we love and we're, we're doing something that creates wonder and makes people children again. And let's, let's, let's just be nice to each other. Yes, I agree. It seems like something I would never, people that know me would be like, my God, I've never heard something like that from you, but that's how I feel now. Yeah. I want people to be nice to each other. There's no reason to bicker about whose levitation is whose and, and hearing people badmouth people in the press. Let's, you know, let's, yeah. let's push, let's keep, because we're a small group. Magicians are a relatively small group. Most magicians know each other in some form or another. Yeah. Right? So. Let's keep we it. Ha we have. It should be easy to not be on a podcast or be on the press. Go, yeah, that magician sucks, and yeah, or whatever. Sure. It should be easy to be constructive about it and say it nicely. If you want to say, well, it's not my style, but you know, he does good work. Or, yeah, yeah. To not bring it down in the public eye. Yeah. It's not like we're a gigantic entity. Sure. We can't control ourselves. A magic convention like this has almost everyone from around the world in it. I think we can to promote keeping our art as pure as possible and you know and not be like fall to the generation of harsh youtube comments that are nameless and faceless you know so. yeah and it's it's interesting because our art is is so dependent upon the other artists within it because it's secrets and i'm using air quotes listeners it's secrets based you know, so we have to be able to communicate with one another. Yeah. So we ought to keep it civil. And, and it's small enough. I, I I think that. You know, as you know, in the magic world, someone says something bad about something, everyone knows. Here's it in in a month. So, you know, let's let's keep our art and art, and not have it fall into you know a YouTube hole. So, that's my time. <laughs> and we'll be right back. All right. I think. I feel like I've talked a lot. You did, and it was all good. Well, thank you. It was, some of it was even great. Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Some, some of it's good. That's great. Um, you know, if you have one good idea and 50 bads. <laughs> no, thank you. Because thank you for asking me to do this because it's made me think a lot about just magic. Yeah. And sometimes working for David, we're so concentrated on focusing on our own problems. Yeah. I don't really think about the magic world as a whole. Yeah. I just concentrate on 
getting done what we need to do to further our brand. And this podcast is making me think more globally and appreciating. Hopefully I won't cower in front of David Williamson when I see him in half an hour. <laughs> I, did, I did a few hours ago. I didn't even, I was at Magi Fest and I couldn't even walk up to him. I couldn't, I'm, I'm I so. the nicest guy on the planet. I can't believe it's like. I know, I'm so intimidated by him. talking about him like that. Yeah. David Williamson, you're on a pedestal. <laughs> but he deserves to be there. Of course. Oh, man. Really? This was, yeah. <laughs> this was the best. This was, Thank you very much. This was so great. And I'm so glad that you are enjoying it. Yeah, I'm show. like, um, I'm like uh, adrenaline fueled right now. I like, just want to go, let's, let's go see a magic act. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's go. Let's go hang out with some people. Yeah. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you. Bye, everybody. <laughs>